Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When I was two years old, when I was I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was naked. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were rolling back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, "Is there evidence of human producer of that song is not mr luke skyrider is not with us tonight but <laughs> who is is your host adam sane and the man with the plan mr rob how's, how's it going, going everybody well we had luke one night this week I we mean, did have luke one night this week yeah I, you know that's that's uh you, you can't ask for two in a row sometimes you know yeah. from 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 mr lukey <laughs> he he is a free 
wandering spirit. That's that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but uh, we are here. And we also have coming up in a bit uh, for the third time on Conspiranormal, Mr. Robert W. Sullivan IV is going to be back with us. And we're, we just had him on back in December. So it's been a little over two months. That was the last show of 2015. And we're going to have him back to talk about, just go over some like basic things about Western esotericism that he knows. Uh, we've had him on about the, uh, what's the uh, cinema symbolism, the, uh, book. And before that, the, uh, what was it? The, uh, the key of Enoch, some Royal Arch of Enoch. That's what it was. There was another guy that we did with the, the, uh, R.J. Brown brooding about uh, Enoch as well, but that was the Royal Arch of Enoch. And so he's coming on tonight, and so we're super excited. But uh, before we get into that interview, uh, Rob and I here went to see a very interesting movie. That's right, and uh, once again, Luke was not there. It, uh, <laughs> oddly enough, yes. And I think it would have been a film that Luke would have enjoyed very much so. And that's uh that was the witch that we went to see on Thursday night. Yeah, it was. It was. It, overall, my impressions are that it was pretty good. Like there was, there's a lot of things that I loved about it, and there's a few things that I I didn't. And it's just, um, I appreciate the pacing, and I appreciate sure. the slow build up and the tension and, and and stuff. But it never got to a point where the um. Uh, the intensity really ever grabbed a hold of me. It kind of it went yeah. through its its peak at the end, and, and like I don't know, it never really, never really peaked for me. I think I went into it with a lot of expectation because uh, I saw the the first trailer a couple of months ago and thought it looked really interesting. And I thought at first it was going to kind of be one of those movies where. It kind of reflected our time period in a way in, in that time period of the 17th century. But it, but it really wasn't like that. It was more of a movie about psychological horror. And there's just some paranoia sprinkled throughout. But it, if anybody hasn't heard of this movie, uh, it's one that I would kind of suggest. And I've heard some other people talk about this as, not really going to see it in theaters, maybe seeing it in like the, uh, in like your home. Uh, because I, I think there's a lot to really grasp in it. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I've been telling people too, is it, it was a pretty good movie to see in a the theater, but I, I kind of wish I would have waited till I could, uh, yeah. It, especially since it was in 17th century English and there's mm. a lot of these and thous. <laughs> Because this is supposed to be, I believe, pilgrims, and this is like 1630s in New England. So they actually do a good job of speaking in that kind of like vernacular and that in that dialect. But it would be so much better to have like subtitles there so you could kind of understand exactly what is going on. You do, as in most movies, I think, where you have especially some foreign films, that, uh, you know, you kind of have to get used to reading the subtitles. And this is the same way. You do eventually, by about the middle of the movie, get used to the language in the movie. Yeah. There was never a time where I, I was confused or didn't know what was going on. Yeah, exactly. There was a couple of things, though, I think that, like, you didn't exactly catch at first, you know, because of some of the thickness of the accent. 
And another thing is too, there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of hidden things in it. I think that would go well for like, like repeat viewing. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely one that, that I would, that I would see again. Um, now some of the themes in it, man, some really deep stuff. Uh, of course you have, you have paranoia, you have the fear of the unknown, you have there it, there's some interesting things about the main character is the daughter of this family that has been kicked out of their religious community and so they've gone into the wilderness and kind of hacked out a little farm for themselves so they live out next to these woods and the main character is the is this girl named Thomason and she is basically, she's kind of like in many ways, the pack animal of the family. Like she does everything basically. Like she carries stuff. She goes and gets the water. She takes care of the animals. She takes care of her younger siblings. And so she's very, she's in many ways, very put upon in, in the film. And there's a very, there's kind of like a feminist aspect to this movie, but I don't really want to give anything away about the ending of the movie, but there's almost this theme of, of liberation uh, for this girl at the end. Yeah. I I hadn't thought of that, which was interesting. Uh, Yeah. You know, you notice it, you notice it through the whole thing. And what's interesting too is that the satanic church, one of the satanic, many satanic churches that are out there, like Satanists have actually embraced this movie. I guess some of that is, is obvious because some of the imagery in the movie, but uh, I think some of it is also this, this also this feminine aspect, not that I'm equating feminism to Satanism in any way, but there seems to be this idea of, of, not going for the religious patriarchy of bucking that system. And that's appealed to a lot of Satanists about this movie. So I found that interesting. And plus the imagery with um, animals was, was really incredible too. Um, You have a Raven that's in one scene. That's pretty intense scene. And you have a little uh, rabbit or a hare that is seen a few times and there's a lot of imagery done with the animals, but the main one and the one that steals the show (laughs) is this goat that they have on their farm named black (laughs) Philip and black Philip has these huge curved horns. He looks very much like he looks very much like a satanic symbol. I would say, would you say that correctly, Rob? Oh yeah, for sure. Like you said earlier, there's going to be a metal band any day now that's called Black Phillip. Called Black Phillip. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> this is one I really did want want uh, Luke to see because it would have been he would have loved it, and I think I think you'll see it eventually. But it's definitely a it's definitely an unconventional movie in in many respects. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and like you said before, I mean, I'd like to see it again and delve deeper into a lot of the, right. the symbolism and a lot of the, the underlying stuff. Cause it was a lot of just trying to keep up with the movie in the theater was you know, challenged enough. Right. Exactly. 
Yeah, in the theater, you don't really get that time to like kind of pause it, go back, try to figure out what's going on. And like I said, there's so much hidden imagery. Uh, did you notice the one scene you have? You have this theme of the mother uh, keeps talking about this silver cup, mm-hmm. and you, you find out what happened to the silver cup. But basically, one character is blaming the other, blaming she's blaming Thomason for getting rid of her silver cup. So you, you have this air of suspicion. And you see this one scene where she wakes up and it's this, I guess, for the lack of a better term, confrontation with an entity. And there's the silver cup behind her. Did you notice that? Uh, you mean scene? like the, that sort of dream sequence? Yeah, sort of scene? It, really yeah. Wasn't, it really wasn't pushed in like, it was kind of just in the background. She doesn't look at it and say, oh, there's my silver cup. <laughs> well, it's like, it's just there. But I think that was part of her um, downward spiral Right. Descending into madness and everything going back to where it was because she can't cope with. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I thought it was nice and subtle. So I think there's a lot of other things in it that are probably real subtle as well. <clears throat> and yeah, definitely highly recommend it. I would highly recommend it for seeing it at home, which is I think where a lot of people are because it's kind of like this small little indie movie. That's kind of taken off and it's not, but it's not playing. Like when we went to see it, it was like a really small screen in the theater and like, you know, Deadpool was like four movie theaters or something. Yeah. And you know, the witch was only playing on one. And I think like at home, um, you know, watching it with the lights turned off and by yourself, it would have been way more intense than in the theater sure. where it's, you know, 40 people sit around you talking and kind of distracting you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But we Taking out of the immersion. We we went to see it about a week after, so there weren't a lot of too many people in the movie there. No, it wasn't, wasn't bad. They seemed to uh I think they seemed they all seemed to appreciate it. I think by that time, if you're going to see it, you're probably seeing it for appreciation. You know, there's some um there are some interesting things about it, you know, especially paranoia. Uh like I said, when I first saw the trailer, I thought it was gonna be more like um the Crucible, which is right. the play by Arthur Miller, uh, that was depicted the Salem Witch Trials, which is about maybe like a little more than half a century later than what's depicted in these events. And unlike the witch, which is just a fictional account, kind of like a amalgamation of folklore that this director who grew up in New England had heard, the Crucible was based on a true story and the Salem Witch Trials. And that seems to be a common, it's almost like our inheritance from the Puritans in a way. It seems to be a very common uh, occurrence in American history is just this paranoia or distrust of the other. Um, and I think we're seeing it come back now, especially in this time, this election year. Uh, and I'm not going to say it's just Donald Trump doing it. I mean, it's other candidates as well because we're still in the primary elections. So you had fear first against witches and then immigrants and then communism. And then, you know, maybe before that a little bit, it was Jews. And then that was mixed in with communists. And then you had, and then after communism, we had the whole Muslim thing going on. So well, it's no different. No, fear is a real powerful um, motivator. 
Right. So it's, it's, it's easy for, you know, that's where you see religions and politics intertwining a lot is the use of, of that kind of fear, that kind of, um, uh, just influence to, to, you know, over the people. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, uh, again, thoroughly enjoyed the movie. And I think we're going to go ahead and we're going to go to the guest here. And I got some things I want to read about the Scalia stuff that I found real interesting at the end of the show. So we will go ahead and we will go to our guest now. And guys, we'll be right back with Robert W. Sullivan IV on Conspiracy Normal. Buckle up for adventures. Strap on your thinking gear and prepare yourself to be inspired. The 4th Annual Paradigm Symposium is coming again to Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 12th through the 15th. An eclectic cast of presenters, including Scott Walter from History Channel's America Unearthed, Randall Carlson of Sacred Geometry International, historian and ufologist Rich Dolan, conspiracy, cryptozoology, and UFO writer Nick Redfern, and keynote hermeticist Lon Milo Duquette, as well as several other researchers and pundits in the fields of the academic the weird and the unknown with topics that range from archaeology and hidden history to alternative science, ancient aliens, paleo contact and world mysteries. Tickets are now on sale at the website to see all the details for this amazing event and symposium and to get your tickets now go to paradigmsymposium.com Come to learn, leave inspired. Okay, guys, we are back on Conspiranormal with the guest, and we have now joining the three-guest club, that is Mr. Robert W. Sullivan IV, and we're happy to have you back on, sir. How's everything going with you? Hey, Adam, thanks for having me back on Conspiranormal. Um, yeah, it's great to be back on. Um, I think I was on about, what, about a month, month and a half ago for Cinema Symbolism, and yeah. about a year before that for the Royal Arch of Enoch, so yeah, it's uh, great to be back, and uh joining you again and uh let's let's get this uh show on the road yeah absolutely absolutely you know we had talked about on the last show uh after the last show actually with you i kind of talked to you about maybe doing like just kind of a general i don't know lack of a better term primer on kind of like western esotericism a little bit on uh freemasonry and maybe some occult uh stuff as well so i i just wanted to get you on someone that i that i think of as an expert on these on these matters to to talk about that stuff but uh, for some other people that may not have heard the older show that we did cuz that's now been gosh it's been about 2 years now uh that we had you on the first time i think that was february 2014 kind of like what's your background in freemasonry and studying some of this some of this material yeah, um, I, I am a Freemason. I became a Freemason here in Baltimore um, in 1997. Um, I applied. I applied in the summer of 1996. I didn't actually go through the rituals until 1997. I became a 32nd degree of the Scottish Rite um, in 1999. Um, I've always been interested um, in just the occult, secret societies, um, cryptozoology, UFOs. It, it's just something that's always um, interested me, even since I was a child. Um, you know, the, the one show that always left a lasting impression on me was the old um, In Search Of show. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I thought that was tremendous. I thought that was great. 
and um, I, it was just you know something that always kind of stuck with me during um, you know just growing up. But it really, it really for me wasn't until I got to Oxford in 1992 um, where I sort of was exposed to this whole idea of the hermetic tradition and its influence on material culture, you know, and, and society and popular culture as well. Um, and, and that's when really I started, you know, reading, you know, about people like Giordano Bruno and John Dee and, and, and was really exposed to this. Um, and it fascinated me. Um, and just, you know, how this, you know, whole hermetic Kabbalistic tradition and secret societies and Freemasons and the odd fellows. And I just began researching the hell out of it, Adam. I mean, there's really no other way to say it. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, I had a life to live also. I mean, I wasn't spending every day with my, you know, nose buried in between a book, but it was something right. I, 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 you know, I just was fascinated with. And I began outlining and writing the, this, this book about Freemasonry and of course going through the rituals helped. Um, and then, you know, the, the rest was sort of history. Royal Arch of Enoch, um, came out in, in, in August of 2012. I mean, I can't believe that's going on four years now. Yeah. Um, c- cinema symbolism is almost two years old. And, um, you know, I know, I know we bandied some emails about some of the movies, the witch crimson peak, we could certainly talk about. I'm actually finishing up. I mean, I think I can pretty much use that term finishing up cinema symbolism too. Um, I'd say that that's easily 80% done at this point. I'd also like to add that I'm working on a, my first work of fiction, um, that, that it's also coming along very well. But right now, um, I'm concentrating all my efforts to getting the Cinema Symbolism 2 book done. Um, and then I'm going to go back and, and finish up the uh, first work of fiction, you know, go back through it, do some edits, things like that. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer uh, and, uh, you know, a history major. I've studied philosophy, theology, religion, history, comparative religion. Um, and you'll find that all in my books and uh, applying this, you know, Western hermetic tradition is uh, a, a big part of, um, you know, the Royal Arch of Enoch and uh, cinema symbolism and my books, uh, my forthcoming books as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about something that as you were going through that just kind of piqued my interest. Uh, this may seem like a kind of a silly question, but it, I know through the uh, English Rite Freemasonry, you have the three stages, the three degrees, and you only have those three degrees, and you do an initiation ceremony for each one. In Scottish Rite Freemasonry, I guess you have to go through 32 different or 33 different uh, initiations. How does it's that a work? Di- yeah, it's it's a little different. Um it's it's really more of um in 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 the blue lodge the rituals are participatory um okay you you participate in the ritual um you have to put on this very silly well not silly but um i mean it is kind of odd pajama like costume um you're blindfolded um you know you you know it's really like almost like wearing half pajamas is really the best way i can describe it yeah. you have a slipper on one foot you're barefoot on the other it's it's to make you feel awkward you have a cable toe around your neck um you're brought in um you know you're walked around the lodge you, you go through the ritual you're 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 paraded um around the ritual i guess silly's not the, not not the right word but it's odd it's odd that's the better word um it's different um, yeah, but, for someone you know, that's I, not used to it, it would seem kind of silly or, or, or odd. Right, yeah. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I understand having gone through it, I have a more a deeper understanding of why it's done. Sure. But, but to make a long story short, when you do this in the in the this is degrees one, two or three and you have to do it, um, you know, and you, you participate in the ritual, um, you're participating. When you get to the Scottish Rite, there are 32 degrees. The 33rd is honorary. Um, so you're only going through degrees four through 32. Um, these are not participatory um, by and large. What you do is when you're doing the Scottish Rite, you go into an amphitheater um, and you're just basically sitting in the crowd um, and watching the rituals are like morality plays being performed before you by other people. Um, the rituals you, you really don't participate in. Um, there's a couple phases where they do call you up on stage, um, things like that, but they call everyone up on stage. It's nothing alarming or anything. I mean, you, you, you know, when I did the Scottish Rite, I mean, you just sit there, you, you don't, you don't, you know, put on a costume or do anything like that. You just basically go into an amphitheater, grab a seat, you know, you know, and just sit there and, and you're little, the, the degrees are performed before you and they're essentially um, 32 morality plays. Some are longer than others. Um, some are very quick. Um, and, and they, they continue on sort of these biblical stories, uh, this biblical, you know, Judeo Christian mysteries, you know, esoterica coming out of the Blue Lodge. Um, and again, if you're familiar with the Royal Arch of Enoch book, um, you, you, you will, you will know that the really, that the premier degree in all this is the 13th degree in the Scottish Rite, the Royal Arch of Enoch. Um, the other high degree body in, Scot in Scottish Rite, in Freemasonry, is called the York Rite. They do the Royal Arch as well. Um, and that's the seventh degree. So to wrap up, um, the York Rite, when you get to the York Rite, you're just, you're just really watching the, the rituals. You're not really participating. Um, and you're just sitting in an, a giant amphitheater, literally just watching like morality plays being played out before you. Okay. So these are allegories of what is the, the symbolism and the, and the meaning, uh, involved in these, in the, in each, uh, different, uh, degree. To, to an extent, I mean, they're, they're, they're morality plays. That's, I mean, they're people in costumes, um, you know, you know, and, and, and they, you know, there's movie, it's a stage. It's like literally watching a mini play in, yeah. in front of you. Um, and they teach different things. It, it, it's like watching little mini Shakespeare plays based on the Bible. People are in costumes, um, you know, and, and each degree, I mean, you know, some degrees are more occult than others. Some are very brief. Some are more lengthy. Um, and, you know, each degree is different. Um, but by the time you but, but what I, the point I'm making is you're just sitting. It's like what, sitting there watching like a Shakespeare play. Almost. OK. OK. Yeah. So no active participation by yourself. I, I want to ask. Well, there, there isn't a couple of them, but by okay. and large, you're just sitting there. Okay. And, and learning is the point there, exactly. I think. Exactly. So I, I wanted to ask you too, uh, the Scottish, the difference between the Scottish Rite Freemasonry and the Blue Lodge, and is that the same as the English Lodge or English well, tradition have, of Freemasonry? Well, well, right. Um, I think I understand what you're asking. You yeah. have, um, you have modern day Freemasonry. Um, this gets into sort of like the origins of the two rites, um, because they, they're, they are different. Um, sure. 
what you have is the Blue Lodge. This is degrees one, two, and three. This is the entered apprentice degree, um, fellow craft and master mason degree. Um, this is born, this officially comes onto the scene in London, England in, on June 24th, 1717. Masonic lodges existed in Europe, existed in Scotland, existed in England prior to that time. But this is the official codification, unification of Freemasonry. This is when it quote unquote officially appears on the history page. Um, and this is degrees one, two, and three. This is in London, England. The, the high degrees of Freemasonry, they come years later, um, and they are born in Paris, France in the 1740s and 1750s. They are a product of the ongoing counter-reformation. Um, and it, it is, it is, um, the high degrees sub- differ substantially in some of the teachings of the Blue Lodge. In the Blue Lodge, you have themes of brotherhood, egalitarianism, um, equality. In the high degrees, you have themes of apotheosis, papal monarchy. Um, they're much more esoteric. Um, you have Jesuit themes. You have Knights Templar themes. Um, and it's, it's the, the, the high degrees are being cultivated by the Jesuits um, as a counter-reformation trick um, to essentially undermine Blue Lodge Freemasonry um, and restore a Stuart pretender back to the throne of England. Um, the Jesuits drop out of this. The, the high degrees become very popular. They become very popular in the continent of Europe, not so much in England um, because of who and what they're associated with, the Jesuits and the French, the two mortal enemies of England. Makes but, sense. Um, it's it's the it's they're 25 degrees the original the, the original high degree system is 25 degrees it's called the right of perfection it comes into the united states um and, and you know it, it it filters in uh, a lodge of perfection lodge of perfections are established ones established in philadelphia the most famous one is established in albany new york by a man named henry franken um and they float around um, and, and, and some lodges recognize them, some don't, some work the degrees as, you know, as auxiliary degrees, some don't recognize them. Um, and it's really until 1801, um, in Charleston, South Carolina, that the Scottish rite is established. Um, and it, and it, it, it takes these 25 degrees and graphs and splits up a couple degrees, graphs a couple degrees, and, and it becomes degrees four through 32 in 1801, known as the Scottish rite. Um, with the 33rd degree being honorary. Um, and I'll just explain real quickly. Um, the, the Scottish rite is not Scottish in origin. It is French in origin. The reason that it bears the title, the Scottish rite is, is it, it goes to the Royal Arch of Enoch degree. One of the earlier workings of this degree, um, in France is called the Scotch master's degree. Um, and make, it has to do with the rest of the recovery of this or the recovery and discovery of the subterranean treasure vault as the ritual exists today. Um, the treasure vault is discovered by um, Jewish temple builders. One of the earlier workings, and this is the Scotch master's degree, the treasure vault is discovered by um, Roman Catholic Knights Templars from Scotland. Um, so this is the nexus to, to Scotland, as well as the, you know, w- within the Blue Lodge, you had the Scottish, excuse me, you had this Blue Lodge um, in Kilwinning, Scotland. This is all, 
usually called the Mother Lodge of Freemasonry. Um, this is one of the most earliest lodges of Freemasonry in Scotland. This is the lodge that the poet Robert Burns belonged to in Kilwinning. Um, so, so this is where the high. So this is this is why the, it's called the Scottish Rite. It's both a reference to the Scottish Templars um, who discovered this treasure vault um, in one of these earlier workings of the Royal Arch of Enoch degrees, and it is Kilwinning Lodge, which is one of the um, earlier. Um, or one of the earliest Masonic Blue Lodges that we know of, but the Scottish Rite in origin is actually French, um, and it's established in Charleston, South Carolina in 1801. Um, as this is going on, a man named Thomas Smith Webb is cultivating something called the York Rite of Freemasonry, um, and at some of the degrees of this are of his own invention. Some of them existed elsewhere, but one of the most important degrees of the York Rite is the Royal Arch of Enoch, um, and he lifts that from this original Rite of Perfection um, uh, coming out of Paris, France, if that answers your question. Gotcha. So there's all these kind of different traditions happening at the same time. And what does Albert Pike do? What is his... What is his role? What is his importance? Because you hear a lot about him, especially from conspiracy-minded kind oh, of people. Sure. And does he kind of codify this, these degree systems in uh, morals and dogma? What does he do? No, no. There, there, there is a lot of bogus information out there about Albert Pike. Um, you will hear. I, I, this is one of the most most um, painful um, things you will hear in the in the world of conspiracy, um, and is so painfully wrong, um, is that Albert Pike is the inventor of the Scottish Rite. Um, Albert Pike is the Illuminati guy who cultivates something called the Scottish Rite. This is 100% false. Um, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry is established in Charleston, South Carolina. The man behind this is a man named Frederick Doucho. Um, he is really the godfather of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. This occurs in May of 1801. Albert Pike isn't even born until 1808, 1809. Yeah, I was thinking um, that was too early for Albert Pike. Yeah, yeah. Because so, so, he was a so general still, in the Civil War. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm still waiting for people to tell me how Albert Pike is inventing the Scottish Rite eight or nine years before he's even born. Um, he, he, he is a he, – he, he is a northerner. He is not a southerner. Um, people, some say he is the inventor of the Ku Klux Klan, totally false. Um, another thing, um, uh, puts him in a group called the Knights of the Golden Circle. That is for Southern gentlemen. Um, Pat Pike is a northerner. He would never have been welcomed by that group. Um, he was a Confederate he, general though, wasn't he? Right. But he was very looked at with much disdain. He is what is known as a copperhead. Um, these were Northern Democrats who, who, who okay. supported the Confederacy. If you want to see what a copperhead looks like, take a look at the movie Gangs of New York by yeah. Martin Scorsese. The, um, the, One of my the, favorites. Uh, yeah, the Daniel Day-Lewis character, Bill yeah. the Butcher, that's a copperhead. Um, Pike is from Boston, Massachusetts. He's a Harvard dropout. He joins a secret society called the Odd Fellows. He's a member of this years before he joins the Freemasons. He ultimately does become a Freemason. In 1859, he rises to the rank of Grand Sovereign Commander of the Scottish Rite. This is irrefutable. Um, he is a Southern general. Um, he, he, he rises to the rank of brigadier general in the Confederacy. No question a, a controversial figure, uh, no question where his loyalty lied. Um, but he, you know, you know, fighting for the Confederacy, that this is irrefutable. Um, he is not the inventor of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, that was invented by five Confederate, ex-Confederate generals in Pulaski, Tennessee. Pike was never there. The first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan was a, a Confederate general named Nathan Bedford Forrest, yep. um, not Albert Pike. Um, Pike 
in in you know he does he is grand you know grand sovereign commander of the Scottish Rite. The rituals um, he tweaks some of the rituals um, of the Scottish Rite. Some of the ritual tweaks take um, in 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 the Scottish Rite. I should also point out that within the Scottish Rite there are two jurisdictions, northern and southern. Um, Pike is in in charge of the southern jurisdiction, not the northern. Um, that is a completely separate body in the United States. Um, so he's he's grand sovereign commander, grand, excuse me, grand sovereign commander of the southern jurisdiction, um, and it's a position he holds his entire life. Um, and and he tweaks some of the rituals. Um, again, this is these rituals existed before him. All all four degrees, um, four through thirty two and the thirty third. He edits, tweaks some of them. Um, but but again, it, it's primarily they're all intact. Um, at when, you know, when he gets here, he doesn't reorganize or, or create the rituals or anything like that or steal them or anything like that. They were all in place well before he got there. In 1871, he publishes a book called Morals and Dogma of the Scottish Rite. If you have read this book, you will know this has nothing to do with Freemasonry. It is the first book published in the United States about comparative religion. It is plagiarized all but start from finished um, from a book called uh, called um, called uh, uh, it's the degree I'm gonna mispronounce this. It's it's the dogma of high degree magic, which was published by a French transcendental magician known as Eliphas Levy or Eliphas yeah, Levy. Yeah. I've heard this pronounced both ways. Um, Pike rips the book off big time. Um, it, it, all he does is the, the book has little, if anything, to do with Freemasonry. Um, I mean, it does to the effect of what what he does is it's a book on symbols and comparative religion. He, he goes through the degrees of of the Scottish Rite in the Blue Lodge, and then what he does is he says, okay, when when um, when when the when when Masonry uses uh, th- this symbol, you know, and then he goes back in time. Okay, the symbol of the rose, you know, to the Rosicrucians it meant this. To the Mithraic mysteries it was this. To to the Persians it was this. To the Egyptians it was this. You know, the Sprig of Acacia. To the Eleusian mysteries it was this. And he just goes through the symbols of Freemasonry um, and how they are sort of the inheritor of these all these ancient mystery religions. Um, and then he goes back in time and explains, okay, you know, the 12 hazards of the Zodiac, you know, it was this and this and this and this, and it turns up in Christianity is this, you know, and, and the spring of Acacia was this, and, you know, Apollo is this, and he's Mithras in this. And it's, it's essentially a study in um, comparative religion. It's a very good book. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, I rely on it all the time. Uh, Pike dies in 1891. Um, I, I, he's a definitely a controversial figure, but um, I, I like the Morals and Dogma book. Uh, it's very well written. Um, can get a little dry at times, but if you're interested in comparative religion and symbols, um, I would highly recommend it. So you think he gets kind of a bad rap now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, he he definitely gets a bit of a bad rap. I mean, it, I, the, the, you know, there's it's irrefutable that he fought for the Confederacy. I mean, a lot of people did. Yeah, he's um, the only Confederate general that's buried in Washington D.C., as I understand it. He's the only Confederate general buried in the confines of Washington D.C. Yeah. He's buried in the um, Scottish Rite Temple there. Yeah, I've been there. Uh, and and he's also the only Confederate general in Washington D.C. to be honored with an outdoor statue. 
um, and that's in Judiciary Square. Um, he, he, there are Confederate, there are statues of Confederate generals. Most of them are inside. Um, I mean, there are a couple of them in the Capitol Rotunda, but he's the only Confederate general to be honored with a, um, statue outside in Washington, D.C. I mean, he's a controversial figure. Um, no question about it. I mean, you know, but he, he, he is, he gets a lot of bad press, um, that, that is, is, is really, you know, that he's not responsible for. But um, like I said, I like the book. I like the Morals and Dogma book. And if you're interested in Freemasonry and comparative religion and, and symbolism, I mean, I would definitely say it's a must read. Sure. Sure. Interesting. I, I've actually have, remember when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I think I actually checked it out of the library and it was funny because I, I don't think I actually read a lot of it, but it was just, it was one of those cool things to do. And it was funny because in the, at the beginning of it, it said, this book shall not be taken out of the lodge under penalty of death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of yes, course and it had to have been because it was in the library. Rebound. And there it is in the library. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they used to, um, they don't do it anymore. They used to give you a free, if, when you joined the Scottish Rite, you got a free copy of it. They don't do it anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you used to see that stamp. Um, in, in a lot of the copies, you know, you know, if you take this book out of the library, penalty of death. Um, I mean, I can tell you right now, you can find the PDF um, of the book. Um, the book's in the public domain, so you can find right. the, the PDF of it online all you want to. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's let's talk about the history of Western es- esotericism and where it starts and where I've some of the things that I have studied and where I believe that it starts is with the mystery school religions of the Roman Empire or even the ancient Near East. Can we kind of go into that kind of like what kind of those mystery, the ones for you that you believe really have influenced uh, Western esotericism? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely have a lot. I mean, I think these mystery religions also influence a lot of the major religions. Um, when you start peeling back the onion of these major religions, um, you know, such as Islam, Christianity, Judaism, I mean, you will find all the underpinnings of these mystery religions as well. In fact, you, you could almost craft the argument that a lot of the major religions are just, you know, somewhat plagiarized versions um, of the mystery religions, but absolutely. I mean, you have, um, you know, Mithraism, you have the Egyptian mysteries. Um, these are paralleled in, in Greek, you know, the, in Greco Rome, you know, Greco Roman, um, with the Aleutian mysteries. Um, you have the soul Invictus, um, you know, cult in, in, in Rome. I mean, this is a precursor of, of Christianity. I mean, certainly, you know, the, you know, with, 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 uh, you know, Persian, you have a uh, mystical Islam, Sufism, um, that has a huge influence upon Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry, believe it or not. Um, so yes, I mean, you know, uh, Zoroastrianism, you know, Pythagorean, Pythagoreanism, mathematics, I mean, all these ancient mystery traditions, um, you know, begin to filter into Europe. Um, some say they're really introduced by the Knights Templar, um, uh, there, there definitely seems to be, you know, credible evidence to this. But yeah, I mean, you know, you get into a lot of these ancient mystery schools. Um, you know, the ones I'm, you know, you're familiar with. You know, you know, absolutely, you will um, cl- clearly see their fingerprints um, all over Western, you know, Hermeticism, uh, Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, secret societies. Um, you know, the Cathars, um, the Illuminati, the Jesuits. Um, you know, all, all these, you know, esoteric movements, you know, really do incorporate a lot of these, 
um, you know, underpinnings from these ancient mystery religions. But I think even more importantly to me is when you begin really peeling back the onion um, of Christianity, of Judaism, and of Islam, um, you, you will find this as well. Um, you know, you will find, I mean, I, I you know, I, I think this is almost somewhat of the purpose of, of a lot of these, you know, groups, come, you know, popping up, you know, like the Rosicrucians and, and Freemasonry and the Templars um, is, is a lot of their traditions as well, I think, are trying to, you know, they're, they're carrying on these these same traditions, but they're more trying to show you through symbolism to say, hey, you know, you know, you're going to see these um, these underpinnings of these ancient mystery schools in these modern religions. And I think that's what made groups like the Templars so dangerous um, is, you know, that, you know, I, is, is they, I think they, they were really the ones that came into contact with this knowledge that the, you know, major religions were just mere reflections of the mystery schools as well. Um, that that's my take on it at any rate. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. When you're dealing with Western hermeticism, Western esoterica, Europe, um, secret societies. Yeah. I mean, it all goes back to these ancient mystery schools. Um, I, I don't dispute that. I mean, I, I totally agree with it as a matter of fact. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it almost would have to, in a way, I, I, I want to talk about, and this is an interest of mine for a while has been, uh, Gnosticism, uh, oh, yeah. specifically, you know, Christian, Christian Gnosticism. And how does that relate to kind of like the beginning of Western esotericism as well, because to me, I see that as even more of a route for this, uh, for Western esotericism than the mystery school religions, because there's a lot of yeah. emphasis there uh, on the, on knowledge and especially this very interesting take on the garden of Eden story. Yeah. Well, when you have, um, when, when you're dealing with Gnosticism, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, you're, again, you're dealing with a, a major influence upon Western Hermeticism. Um, you know, there, there are not Gnosticism. You can break this up into a couple categories. Um, when it comes to Gnostic thought, I mean, you, you know, I guess you have the Gnostics and then, you know, the really the carriers on of the Gnostic tradition really are the Cathars. They, they get suppressed. Um, and then you find Gnostic elements, certainly in Rosicrucianism. Um, you know, they're influenced by the Sufis. That's mystical Islam. That's right. sort of Gnostic Islam. I mean, Freemasonry has Gnostic um, influences upon it, especially in the Blue Lodge. When you, when you're really dealing with, um, you know, with, with Gnosticism, you're really dealing with two, two bodies of thought. You're dealing with the three Gnostic godfathers, the, 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 the three founders of Gnostic thought. Um, and then you get into later on this discovery of the Nag Hammani library, which is the sort of gospels that have been left out of the Bible, you know, the gospels of truth, the gospels of Thomas, where you get into these Gnostic teachings of Christianity. Um, and, and this, this is just it. I mean, is, you know, is, is, you know, to, to a lot of Gnostics, Jesus isn't a real person. He's thought of as wisdom of light. Um, you have, um, you know, you know, you have the, the three Gnostic godfathers are Manny, um, Valentinius, mm-hmm. who the, who he was actually in line to be Bishop of Rome at one point in time. And right. then Basilitus, um, you know, Manny, Manny is, you know, light versus dark, good versus evil. Um, the evil is materialism. This is the world of the demiurge. Um, a lot of Gnostics saw the, you know, the Christ figure of the new Testament as the spiritual figure 
Um, whether he's real or not is debatable, but he's the spiritual force of esoteric wisdom. The God, to many Gnostics, the God of the Old Testament is the Demiurge, you know, who wants to destroy mankind, is keeping, you know, wisdom away from mankind. This is sort of the Garden of Eden story where the serpent or Lucifer, the light bearer, is trying to bring wisdom to mankind, and the evil Demiurge or Jehovah is trying to keep mankind and women, womankind in a state of servitude. So it, it, to the Gnostics, the God of the Old Testament is the Demiurge, um, you know, and, and sort of the God of the New Testament Testament would be the God of light or wisdom. Um, many Gnostics viewed the Christ as as um, as, a, as, a, as a divine force, a divine spark. You'll find this in the Nag Hammani Library, where Jesus is not really viewed as a real person, but as a divine spark. Um, the Christ in you, as it were. Um, you know, many, many is, you know, good versus evil, light versus dark. In Christianity, this is, of course, God versus the devil. Um, you'll find this filtering in through Zoroastrianism. Of course, you know, you get into right. the Egyptian mysteries, it's Osiris, Set, um, Apollo, Typhon, or Python, same thing. Um, Valentinius. Um, saw this similarly, where the followers of Christ, the followers of light, are the you know the, the true Gnostics, the, the people seeking spiritual gnosis. Pagans and and unconverted Jews were sort of um, you know the you know doomed to materialism. Um, so same sort of theme, you know, where where the followers of Christ are the true Gnostics, the you know the the followers of the light, where. Um, if you weren't that, you know, you were you were trapped in the material world, the, the 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 material you know matrix, which is the world of the demiurge. Then you've got Basilidis. Um His cosmology is a real train wreck. Um, he goes one step further and essentially says, um, you know, that that a- any any anything on Earth. Anything, you know, even speaking and thinking, you become an agent of the demiurge. So you should basically spend your entire life in some sort of meditative state doing nothing. (laughs) Um, And and, and this is this is Basilidis. And I guess this this is sort of like Zen Buddhism almost to a certain degree. Yeah, that's what Uh, it reminded me of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Basilidis is even if you think um, you, you you're an agent of the you know of of the material demiurge, speaking, seeing, you're an agent of the demiurge, and that's no girl good. The only way to achieve spiritual gnosis is to basically spend your whole life, you know, in a state of a meditative trance, doing nothing. Um, that's Basilidis. Um, and you, so, so those are really the three Gnostic godfathers. Um, and you know, you, you'll find, you'll find this, you know, in, in Freemasonry, the idea of, you know, being in a state of darkness brought to light. Um, this is Manichaeanism, um, you know, spiritual gnosis, the study of esoteric wisdom through symbols. Um, this is generally termed as, you know, the, the pursuit of Sophia, which is the sacred feminine. Um, so, so, you know, in, in the Egyptian mysteries, this would be Isis. Um, and this ties into um, notions of Freemasonry with being brought from darkness to light, death and resurrection. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, Gnostic thought, I totally agree with you, Adam. I mean, has a substantial impact on Western hermeticism. Um, I think that's pretty irrefutable. Do you think Gnosticism came from pagan roots or was it something that was it really a branch of Christianity? That well, I mean, we know that it was, but did it have more of an influence from early Christianity than, or did it have more of an influence from paganism? 
Well, it, 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 it's probably a bit of a combination of both. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, you could ultimately argue that Christianity is of in itself of a bit of a paganism, um, you know, where, where the Christ, the Christ figure is just a rebranding of, um, you know, the, you know, you, you could call Jesus the sun, you could call him Mithras, you could call him Horus, you know, it's sort of the, the same figure. A lot of Gnostics viewed, viewed it this way. Um, and, you know, it, it's really, um, it's really the idea of, you know, pre-Council of Nicaea, you had these different Christian sects who, who, who viewed this all completely differently. I mean, you know, you had, um, you know, Gnostic Christians who viewed Jesus as a spiritual force and not a real fer- person. You had Doceticism, which viewed Jesus as a, a spiritual entity um, and not a human being. But there was, a, you know, but, but the problem with Doceticism was because Jesus was a spiritual entity, he couldn't suffer on the cross. Therefore, he wasn't dying for the sins of mankind. Um, then, then you had, you know, then you had um, different, you know, Christian sects who viewed Jesus as a divine teacher but not of not as a divine figure so you had these different competing competing sects but 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 when when Christianity is ultimately you know romanized in, in with the Council of Nicaea under Constantine it's essentially they're taking these old mystery traditions um you know these you know these astrological solar themes coming from Mithraism the Aleutian mysteries the Egyptian mysteries I mean it's just a rebranding of it um and this again you know you know when when you have these groups such as the Gnostics continuing this on well then you're a threat um, you know, and same thing with the Cathars. If you're if you're teaching something that's different out of the orthodoxy, and you have evidence that contradicts the you know the mainstream, you then become a threat. You know, and you know for for Nicene Christianity, I mean, Jesus was a real figure. He died for the sins. He was this divine entity. You know, the idea of Jesus not being real, being a solar figure, being a stand-in, not being you know, a human being even, um, you know, I mean, obviously this flies in the face of all this, so then it becomes a danger. So within, you know, I mean, of course, in this, this is part of Gnosticism is, you know, you know, is Jesus, you know, was this, it's more of a divine force than he's a real figure. Um, and you know, you can't have that. So, you know, it, it becomes, you know, suppressed and, you know, outlawed and you get the Cathars in the 12th and first, fourth centuries who are, you know, I mean, they they are essentially the last vestiges of Gnostic Christianity. I mean, and they are just completely wiped off the face of the earth. The Templars um, sort of revived Gnosticism. um, No question about it. I mean, you, you know, you, you find these Gnostic thought um, Gnostic themes, um, you know, you, you'll, you'll find it, um, you know, beneath the surface, I mean, a, a great example of this is Dante Alighieri's um, Divine Comedy, which which is it's it's, it's a reversal of Catholic do- doctrine. It's Gnostic, where where Dante, um, it, it's the whole idea of 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 the Inferno is actually div- divinity, um, and it's 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 Dante and Virgil ascend towards the light through Satan. So it's the idea of, um, you know, it, really? it, it's, uh, it's the, oh yeah, it, it's the same thing with Faust. It's the same thing with Faust. Uh, Faust receives the light by ascending, by stepping on the head of Mephistopheles. So it's the same sort of thing of, of, um, it, it, it's, it's the idea of the reversal of Catholic, of Catholic do- doctrine of, um, the Christ, the light, um, is not a real person. It, it's a, more of an esoteric thing, and it's been corrupted into you believing that this is all literal history when it's not, when it's all spiritual gnosis. And you will find this in, in Alighieri's Divine Comedy and in Marlowe's Faust, 
Faust, where um, you know it's the receiving of light through the devil. Um, and what it's trying to show you is that the Catholic dogma has it completely wrong, and it's a reversal. That that the Jesus figure is more of a spiritual, symbolic figure than it is to be taken as literal history. Hmm. I want to talk about the Templars. And I want to talk about kind of their origins and also the influences that they may have have and you have had. And you just mentioned one, which was the Cathars. But it seems like the it seems to me, from the research that I've done on the Templars, that they really did start out as a, a Catholic order. But at a certain point, they may have been exposed to these more the mystery school ideas and also Gnosticism. And that could have been through a group in the Middle East called the Assassins, which is more kind of like a Sufi order. And then also, as you mentioned, the Cathars as well. You know, what's their what's the influence on the Knights Templars? Oh, absolutely. Well, they start they start as this Catholic order. Um, I mean, they, they, you know, it, it's the old idea of that's what they remain exoterically, but esoterically. Um, the idea was that they were created. This is sort of the elite class. Um, they, they, they are the inventors of banking. Um, they are, um, the idea was they are this elite warrior class. Um, they protecting pilgrims to the Holy Land. I think all credible evidence, um, suggests that when they were in the Holy Land, um, they set up their headquarters on the Temple Mount. Um, and, and clearly they discovered something. Um, what that something is, is debatable. In my eyes, it's probably Kabbalistic wisdom or esoteric wisdom. I mean, and, and I totally agree with you. They, they are exposed over there, um, to these vestiges of the ancient mystery schools, the assassins of Hassani al-Sabah, no question about it. Um, Sufism, mystical Islam, um, probably holdouts of Mithraism, the Egyptian mysteries of Osiris, um, you know, uh, Pythagoreanism, mathematics, Zoroastrianism. Um, and I believe, and I, I think all credible evidence points this way is they brought, they brought this knowledge back to Europe. Um, and, and, you know, what, whatever it is they brought back, they became very powerful. They were feared. Um, they were ultimately suppressed by the Pope in 1307, most likely because they had knowledge um, that that these ancient, you know, that the Christianity and Judaism were just vestiges or, or were veiled um, were veiled versions of these ancient mystery schools. That would have made them a very great danger. Um, well, I'm that sure and the King of France owed them owed them money. That didn't right, and the King of France owed the, owed the money. But yeah. here's the thing. Yeah, but here's the thing with all this: if you're a secret order and you're the Templars, what makes you more of a friend, uh, more of a threat? Did you have knowledge that Christianity is a ruse, or that you know some, someone owes you some money? If you have knowledge that Christianity is a falsehood or is symbolic, and the Bible is an astrological allegory, that's going to put you on the hot seat. Um, I mean, that's going to make you a real threat. I mean, that that's really the only thing that could have made. Um, you a real threat, and of course, of course, the King of France would have gone along with this because, like you correctly said, he he owed he owed them tons of money. So, yeah. what better way to get rid of the debt than just kill off the debtor? Um, so he would have been all for this. Um, whatever whatever the Templars knew, I mean, they're suppressed. Um, a lot of them are executed. They, 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 there's evidence that some that they repopulated in Portugal and Spain. Clearly, some of them made their way to Scotland. They they fight along. I mean, this is not even conspiracy. This is history. They fight along um, Robert the Bruce at the Battle of Bannockburn, um, and they clearly, right. um, I mean, they clearly set up. 
some sort of headquarters in Scotland, which most likely, you know, had a filter down upon Freemasonry with Roslyn Chapel. And I, I believe their rituals, um, you know, and again, this whole idea of the dead and resurrected sun man, um, which you will find in Christianity, which you will find in Masonic ritual, which is the Osirian cycle. I, I think this is really the knowledge that they had. Um, and they passed it down through rituals and symbolism uh, more more than the written wor- word. Um, but I think with the Templars, I mean, I totally agree that they def- definitely were influenced by this, um, and it made them a great danger. Um, and they clearly came into you know came into wisdom of some sort that made them a great threat. I mean, they come back to Europe, and then all of a sudden, you know, you had these Gothic cathedrals popping up with the you know Vesica Pisces in it, the, the golden geometry, you know, the sacred ratios. Um, so they came back with something, um, which made them a great threat. But I, th- I think with the Templars, you will definitely see a decided influence upon Freemasonry, which is probably, you know, you know, the, the, you know, modern day Freemasonry owes something to the Templars. I think that's pretty, you know, irrefutable at this point in time. Well, let me, before we talk about that, let me ask you about the Da Vinci Code stuff. Was we're on the, the topic of the Templars. I mean, this is a big thing. I mean, really, since before the Da Vinci Code, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that was kind of the beginning of this right. whole idea of the bloodline of Jesus, and the Templars knew something about it. And now you have someone we've had on this show, Scott Walter, that is a big proponent of this this idea, and he's really into the Templar stuff. Uh, what's, do you think that there could be anything to that, or is it just more of, like, as you just described, a more of, a, an, of an esoteric knowledge? I think I, I see. I, I don't buy into this whole bloodline thing. Okay. Um, I think I think the knowledge that they had, what would have made them the greatest threat? And the answer to that question is, what, what I mean, the, the greatest threat you could pose to to the to the Vatican and Rome at that point in time is Christianity's a falsehood. That's the greatest threat you could have posed, and that's what would have gotten them in the greatest trouble, not some sort of bloodline or anything like that. In fact, that would have strengthened the argument. Um, you know, that, that would have actually helped them potentially. Um, you know, you know, if, if you have Jesus being a real figure, that would have actually potentially have strengthened their argument. Um, but of course, I mean, you know, you get into the thing of Jesus, you know, marrying and that wasn't kosher or anything like that. But I think the greatest danger would of all would have been to know that Jesus never existed and that the, all the characters of the Bible and the Bible is just one solar astrological allegory. I mean, this is why churches are always facing East you know, is to worship the rising sun, Jesus, um, you know, and, and, you know, you have the alignments with the solstices and, and the, uh, 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 you know, to the, uh, you know, solstices and, and, and the equinoxes and things like that. It's, it's all, it's all the sun worship. I mean, the what the one, the high tower of, of Chartes Cathedral is 365 feet, you know, it's the solar calendar. Um, and I think this would have placed them in such a great danger. I mean, you know, and, and this, I think, was, was more of the knowledge that they came into was the whole idea of the Bible being this astrological solar allegory. I mean, you know, you, you, mm. you know, you, you, we talk about Gnosticism earlier, um, you know, where Jesus is the sun, that's S-U-N. Mary Magdalene, the Mary Magdalene character was known as Mary Lucifera, um, and which is the planet Venus. 
um, which is of course the 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 goddess planet. You know, uh, this is Aphrodite to um, the Greeks, uh, Venus. You know, the love goddess. You know, this is the love interest of Jesus. Is the planet Venus known as Lucifer um, because it rises as false light? Of course, Venus in, is close proximity to the sun and is closer to the sun than the stars that compose um, the twelve houses of the zodiac. And the twelve houses of the zodiac are the twelve apostles, which this is why the, the twelve morning, apostles. Morning star, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, this, this is why the 12 apostles or the 12 houses of the Zodiac are always jealous of Mary Magdalene, because she's closer to the sun than they are. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's to me is that the, the knowledge that the Templars would have come into is that the Bible is, is a solar allegory um, and none of these characters are real. That would have gotten into some big time hot water um, with, 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 the, with the Catholic Church, with the Vatican. I mean, and, and that's the reason they were suppressed is because they contain this knowledge, not because they knew of some bloodline or anything like that. It's because they knew the Bible was a hoax was not real history, but was an allegory. I mean, and this is the teaching of the Gnostics. I mean, when you, when you break this down, I mean, you know, you know, the, the idea of, of these characters being real people, I mean, you know, the, the Bible is just replete with astrological solar allegory um, from start to finish. I mean, I get into this ad nauseum. People think, oh, this is conspiracy theory. No, it's comparative religion. I mean, I, give you, I have a hundred-page chapter in the Royal Arch of Enoch breaking down every one of these astrological solar allegories. Um, I mean, in the Bible, I mean, they are in it from start to finish. The entire story of Jesus, the virgin birth, the crucifixion, everything in that in that thing is is one solar astrological allegory after the next. And I think this is the knowledge that they came into that made them this great threat. Um, and again, you, this is, you know, you, you will find this, you know, you know, we talk about, we talk Adam about, you know, a Templar influence about, um, you know, upon Freemasonry, look no further in the third degree. You know, you have the Hiram Abiff character, who's the son, who's the Jesus character. You know, he's betrayed, mm -hmm. killed, and resurrected. It's just, it's just a reference to the sun and its movement through the heavens, not real people running around on planet Earth. Okay. Interesting. Uh, you know, uh, also, too, what was Baphomet? This is an interesting thing. And also to make the point, too, that the, the Catholic Church, it, it seems what you're saying here uh, is that they were just seeing this old heresy pop up again and they were going to stamp it down once again. It was it was more in line with what they had been doing for probably a thousand years at that point. So, yeah, I, I, I can see that as being more of a, of a possibility than, say, a, a bloodline. Uh, but... Because because that but if you really break it down that's what would have made that that's what would have made the Templars a great threat yeah um that well, I mean Baphomet good grief where do you want to start with this um, <laughs> I mean yeah we could we banded our emails about you want to see the goat of Mendes and Baphomet look no further than Black Philip right now um, <laughs> you know in the witch movie um, but the Templars were accused of worshiping some sort of severed head a goat's head a cat's head a three faced head. Yeah. Uh, and this is unique. This is unique to them. Um, and, and this thing was called the Baphomet. Um, and of course, this turns up much more later in the 19th century by a guy I mentioned earlier named the Lafis Levy, who draws this thing called the, it's called the Goat of Mendes. Um, it's more, more known as the Baphomet of Mendes. And this is this Templar figure that, um, he, he is drawing. If you take a look at this thing, I mean, th this thing is like the, 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 
you know, premier symbol within the Church of Church of Satan. Um, the, you know what the Templars were into since I wasn't there. I mean, I don't know. I mean, a lot of their confessions were made under torture, so we have to take them with a grain of salt. Right. The entire the entire goat of Mendez with with Levy. Um, the, 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 this, the, 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 it's really not, I mean, it's not satanic. I mean, I know if you look at this thing, it looks that way. Um, but this thing is very esoteric. Um, the, it has the hands, one hand pointing up, one hand pointing down. This is the ab- above and below of Hermes Trismegistus. Yeah. And its lap is the caduceus of Hermes. This has to do with alchemical transition. The, the goat head, um, the goat head is most likely a reference to the sign of Capricorn, and it's a solar reference because it's under the cap, a sign of Capricorn um, that the sun, that the, that the winter solstice occurs. So it's the birth of the sun. So you, you don't, you could look at it as the sign of Capricorn. Um, and if you look at the goat of Mendes, he's got the pentagram on his head. The pentagram actually has the one point up, which is white magic, and the two points down. So it's actually a white, it's actually white magic, believe it or not. Um, the the goat. Um, this is very important to point out because I was just reading an article about this the other day, and we were banning, we were trading these emails back and forth about the witch movie with Black Phillip, and there was an yeah. ar- there, there, there was an argument there was an article I saw on Twitter, and so why are goats always um, associated with devil worship? Um, and it's a great question. It was actually on Twitter, and I, I clicked on the link and I, I read, read it. I well, mean, never even answered because, it. Some of it is because I think a lot of it has become popular culture now, though, too, because this was a this was an image that was uh, propagated or stolen by Anton Lavey, and then later you have metal music coming along, and that was it was it was it was uh, it was pro- it was propagated by them too. You know, they kind of they could. They kind of stole the whole image. So you got yeah, like but, the heavy metal thing with, with the goat. Yeah, but there's a reason why the goat is associated with the devil and it goes back to the it, it goes back to the sign of Capricorn. I can tell you exactly yeah. where this comes from. Well I think it's for most people it's it's a popular culture thing now. That's what it I'm is, saying. It is, yeah. but there's a reason why the goat is associated with with the devil and what it what it comes from. It comes out of the Bible. Um and again it's astrology. Is is the it, 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 a lot of times these biblical stories um, have to do with um, signs of the zodiac and and the houses that surround a particular sign. So, for example, with Jesus, um, Jesus is if, if we get into Jesus real quick, he's the sun, but he's in the it's the sun in the house of Pisces. It has to do with the age of Pisces. What's the opposite house of Pisces? It's Virgo, the Virgin. This is why the Piscean fisherman is always born of the Virgin. In the Bible story of Jesus being tempted in the desert um, for 40 days, the 40 days, whenever you see this in the Bible, 40 days, this is a reference to the sign of cancer. Um, and the reason that cancer is is 40 days is cancer had no bright stars in it. Um, all the other constellations, all the other houses of the Zodiac have distinguishable stars in them. Um, cancer does not, and it was always a problem to delineate. And because of this, cancer always had five days tacked onto it, a cusp period before and after it. So this is where you get the 40 days from. There are 30 days in each house of the Zodiac. But cancer, they started measuring cancer five days beforehand and five days afterwards because they didn't know. This is where this 40 days comes from in the Bible, 40 days in the desert, 40 days in the wilderness. The reason it's always in the desert or in the wilderness is cancer. It's hot. That's the, you know, with summer solstice, that's yeah. the um, 
you know, hottest time of the year is, is, is the, is, 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 is the house of cancer with the summer solstice. So this is why Jesus, the son is suffering in the desert at 40 days. Well, who tempts him in the desert? The devil. Well, what's the opposite house of cancer? It's Capricorn. So hence you have this association with the goat tempting Jesus, the son in the house of Capricorn. Um, and again, this is, this is complete symbolism. Uh, but this is, the, this is where the idea of the goat tormenting the sun uh, comes from. It's Jesus, the sun god, being in the desert, being tormented by the devil for 40 days. And again, the 40 days, whenever you see that, that is a reference to cancer, the crab, um, and it's it's the goat tormenting. And this is why the goat is always associated with devil worship, is because because of that story. Um, that's very little known. Very it's few people interesting. know that. I've never, yeah. I've never thought of it that way. That That is very interesting. Yeah, very few people know that. Um, you get into you get into this further with the sun being. I mean, I get into this ad nauseum in the Royal Arch of Enoch, and I forget the names of the stars. But um, the sun is at its strongest in the northern hemisphere under the house of Cancer, the crab, which is where the summer solstice occurs. In, in the Bible story, this is um, where Jesus is at his popularity when he's riding the um, when he's riding into Jerusalem on the on the donkey and the ass. Um, this is astrology. In the sign of cancer are two stars known as the little donkey and the great donkey. Um, and this is why Jesus, when he's at full strength um, in the house of cancer, is riding the two two donkeys into Jerusalem. It's straight astrology. It's not real history. It's 100% allegory. And it's, it's a reference to Jesus being at his strongest because the sun is at its strongest in the house of cancer. And it's a reference to these two stars. Um, I forget their names. It's in the book. Um, and, and, and this is why Jesus is riding the two donkeys. Um, it's these two stars in the house of cancer. Again, not real history, complete astrology. And Robert's uh very interesting group that not a lot of people know about and is one that we've talked somewhat about on this show. And some of that was in our show about the Georgia Guidestones with a friend of mine that's done a lot of research on that. And that is the Rosicrucian Society. And they kind of are like, in a way, this median point between the Knights Templar and the Freemasonries chronologically. Where do they fit in? What were some of their was some of their beliefs and what has survived because I know there is a Rosicrucian order now, but I don't know if it has any link to the Rosicrucian order then. So what has survived in uh esotericism to this day with them? Right. I mean, there's actually a degree in the Scottish Rite called, you know, Knight of the Rose, whatever it is, the Rose Rose Qua, which is actually a reference to the Rosicrucians. Um, You're right. I view them more as it's more of a philosophy than it is an actual group. Um, There are um, people who identify with Rosicrucianism. It's it's found, it was allegedly founded by this guy, this German mystic named Christian Rosenkreutz um, in the Middle Ages. It means Christian of the Red Cross. Um, the, the, the all evidence points this guy never existed. Um, and he apparently uh, toured the Middle Ages, or mid- the Middle Ages, toward the Middle East. Um, and when he was over there, he encountered elements and, and became under the influence of the Sufis, which is mystical Islam, and, and, and came into contact with lost wisdom. And he brought this wisdom back to 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 uh, Europe, and and these the, the people who were studying this are the brothers of the Rose Cross. 
Um, they um, it, they have three manifestos, basically announcing this new new world enlightenment, um, and and you know how they were going to stomp out you know you know ignorance and 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 they flirt with alchemy, but for them it was more the idea of you know you say alchemy it's the it's the um, you know the transition of base metal into gold. Um, for the Rosicrucians, this is symbolic. Um, it's a lot of symbolic teachings, and of course, for them, the alchemy is it's it's ignorance to wisdom. Uh, the base metal to gold is is ignorance to wisdom. So it's alchemical in that sense. They, they there are three manifestos of the Rosicrucians. This is the you know, Middle Ages, uh, Renaissance Rosicrucians, um, the, the, the Confessio, the Fama, and the, probably the one that everyone knows, the Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. Um, th- these are very symbolic. There is evidence to suggest that the first two, the Confessio and the Fama, were produced by this guy named Dr. John D. Um, th- 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 there is no direct evidence really? of that, but yeah, that that's where all evidence points. Um, you you will find his uh, his uh, Monus Hieroglyphica, um, which is his little sacred symbol um, in his own treaties. You will find that in one of the um, Rosicrucian manifestos. Um, so so D, D, D is most likely the guy behind um, behind behind those first two. The third one. The chemical wedding of Christian Rosicruz. This is completely symbolic. It documents the unification of the sun and the moon. Um, this was written by a Rosicrucian named um, Johann um, Johann Valentin Andre. Um, and and again, this is a symbolic uh, treatise about the marriage of the sun and moon. Um, you know, and again, it just ties into these esoteric teachings of um, the Rosicrucians. You know, astral astral excuse me, astrology, alchemy, Gnosticism, uh, things of that sort. Um, you, you will find Rosicrucian themes turn up in a lot of utopian reference, in a lot of utopian works. Um, you know, the, I guess probably the one that everyone turns to, that everyone, the, the most well-known one is the New Atlantis by Francis Bacon. Okay. Um, you, you, will, you, you will find Rosicrucian right. uh, themes in, in the works of William Shakespeare, um, I mean, even the line, you know, a rose by any other, uh, any other name is likely a reference to the Rosicrucians. Really? Um, oh yeah, sure. Um, I mean, and you know, when you're, when you're dealing with Shakespeare, you're also dealing with a lot of Neoplatonic themes. Um, th- this is the twining of paganism with Christianity. Um, that's a very, a very popular movement, um, that ties into Renaissance Kabbalah it is Neoplatonic thought. That so, was another um, thing I was going to ask you about was the role of Jewish Kabbalah in all this, how that had, in a way, transmitted a lot of these – may have transmitted a lot of these ideas. Well, that's absolutely correct, um, Adam, is, is, is when you're dealing with the Ros- Rosicrucianism is sort of a byproduct of, of this Renaissance tradition of um, twining Neoplatonism, which is, which is a fusion of Christianity and paganism um, – with with Kabbalah, um, but 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 in the Renaissance you have Hebrew Kabbalah. Um, in the Renaissance, this has changed um, to what's to, to Christian Kabbalah. Um, granted, the original Kabbalah is definitely a Jewish tradition, no question about it. Um, in the Renaissance, this is twined with Christianity to produce Kabbalah, which is spelt with a C instead of a K, um, and it's the same. It's the same almost as Hebrew Kabbalah, only it's it's. It's it's a Christian take on it. Is is the easiest way for me to explain it, and it's out of this 
um, out of Christian Kabbalah and and Neoplatonism that Rosicrucianism sort of emerges. Um, and, and, you know, you have people who identify with the Rosicrucians, you know, even in the 17th century, people like Bacon, Robert Flood, um, Valentin, um, Andrea, Valentin Andrea, John Dee. Um, but I really look at Rosicrucianism as more of an esoteric alchemical philosophy than of an actual secret society. Um, sure. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Rosicrucianism definitely has, and you know, the study of esoteric symbolism, um, the, the, you know, when, when you get into Sufism, which is an influence upon Rosicrucianism, you will also find the Sufi Rosicrucian influences upon Freemasonry. You know, within Sufism, you have a, a Hieromatic, a Hieromic martyr, I forget his name, the esoteric teachings of, you know, teachings esoteric teachings through symbols, non-solicitation of members. This is all um, Sufism, you know, in the Rosicrucianism, in the modern-day Freemasonry. So, yeah, you will absolutely find a Rosicrucian influence upon Freemasonry, uh, no, no question about it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the 19th century. And this sure. seemed to be, because you have Freemasonry, uh, but Freemasonry, in a way, in the early 19th century, kind of declines in some ways uh, because of some of like the anti-Masonic mu- movement here in the United States. Sure, sure. And uh, so, in like the late 19th century, you have this kind of like this flowering of what we would describe now as modern-day occultism. And this is where you get Alephus Levy and the Golden, the Golden Dawn. Dawn. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the Golden Dawn because I mean they were they, I think they're a pretty important um, society because they end up influencing guys like Aleister Crowley. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. The Golden Dawn. Um, I forget. I forget. I believe it's founded by a guy named William Wynn Westcott who found, who went to Germany and found. Um, these secret manuscripts in German about the secret German society, you know, called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, and these are translated, um, you know, and, and it, it gets into the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn had these three orders, you know, an outer order for everyone else, an inner order for the, for the masters and this inner order talk to these spiritual masters, these hidden masters, but only the inner order could talk to them. Um, and then you had the rituals being cultivated. I mean, a lot of this is just, is just coming out of Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism. Um, a lot of the degree work in, in the golden dawn is just Freemasonry renamed, um, and high degree Freemasonry renamed, um, uh, a, a, lot, a lot of the rituals of the Golden Dawn were crafted by a mystic named um, H.L. McGregor Mathers. Yep. Um, McGregor Mathers. Um, he he had got a, got into a feud with Aleister Crowley. Um, Crowley progressed through the degree work of the Golden Dawn very quickly. He wanted in on this inner order. Mathers wanted let him um, in, and they had this huge falling out where Crowley accused him of being a fraud. Um, okay, we got something we got to do real quick. Yes. Okay, there you go. Uh, absolutely, you, you can't go. Yeah, you, you 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 can't go wrong with Mr. Crowley by Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath. Absolutely not. I mean, 
Yeah, absolutely great song. Um, yeah, you should, you should you should just use that as my bumper music. The, the, um, the, the, it, we, we we've talked about Alistair Crowley so much on this show that we decided that we're going to use a soundbite anytime anybody mentions it now. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's absolutely. It. Adam yeah, had me queued up because he knew that we'd we'd be uh, touching on it tonight. So yeah, yeah. oh, absolutely, it's a, it's a great song. Anyway, I mean, it, it's great. Yeah. Oh, Crow, Crow, Crowley. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, he's just so weird. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he does come out of the world of you can't make this stuff up, but he, he's, um, he's a Mason. Um, he's into the golden dawn. He gets into the sex order later on called the OTO. Um, and I mean, that's a whole nother story of, in of, of itself, but the golden dawn, I mean, the golden dawn, I would say, um, I'll just wrap up with this. I mean, it's pretty much the, the p- part of the 20th century revival. It's a great influence upon the 20th century revival interest in occultism, secret societies, magic. Um, and, you know, you move it into the 1960s with Anton LaVey, you know, and, and that crowd. But I mean, I mean, if, if you want to get into like the modern day revival, 20th century revival of modern day occultism, Golden, Golden Dawn is right there um, as, as probably one of the greatest influences um, on the on the 20th century revival of occultism. No doubt about it. Well, there were so many pe- famous people that were involved in it. Uh, another person I can think of was William Butler Yeats. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, William uh, Button. Yeah, go ahead. No. What were some of the other people that were involved? Oh, well, the biggie, the biggie outside of William Butler Yates, you had um, S.L. McGregor Mathers. Um, the, the biggie, um, and some people aren't aware of this, is Bram Stoker, uh, Dracula author. Actually, I am um, aware of that. that yeah, that's yeah, true. Yep. Yeah, yeah Bram Stoker uh, was in The Golden Dawn. And I'm not going to get into it. I don't know if we got into this before, but um, Dracula is overloaded with esoteric imagery, um, the idea of, of Eastern mysticism attacking uh, Victorian Christianity. Um, Dracula has all kind of esoteric symbolisms in it. Uh, I get into that in the movie book. Yeah, but Bram Stoker was in, I mean, the big, the biggies of the Golden Dawn, um, are Aleister Crowley, McGregor Mathers, um, uh, William Butler Yates, as you said, and, um, Bram Stoker. There was, a, uh, the, the Golden Dawn was androgynous. Women could join it. Um, and, and one of the big female mystics in the Golden Dawn was Dion Fortune. Um, she, she's pretty well known also. Um, but those, those are probably the biggies, um, coming out of the golden dawn. Well, they actually kicked, uh, Crowley out, didn't they? Because he was just so too extreme for them. Yeah. And he wanted in on this inner circle, which, yeah. which they wouldn't let him. And then, you know, then, then, you know, Mather said, oh, well, you know, this is all tongue in cheek. It didn't exist. And Crowley, Crowley didn't know how to take it, but, but yeah. Oh, and another guy who was involved with this, how did I miss him? Was A.E. Waite. Um, the Freemason involved with the um, creation of the Weight Rider Rider Weight Tarot Card Deck. A Weight was also in the yeah. Golden Dawn. Yeah, and um, well, well, what's funny with this is I'll, I'll just get into this real quick with with Crowley. Um, Crowley then accused Mathers of being a fraud, and then you know Mathers were like, "Oh, this is just you know he took this too seriously." Um, I forget the name of the character. Um, Crowley documented all this in a work of fiction he wrote called Moonchild, which has to do with the producing of this magical baby. And there's these two magic cults that are vying for this magic baby. One is a white magic cult, which of course Crowley is involved with. Um, and, and, of and course. The Crow- <laughs> yeah, the, Crow- the Crowley character is the white magician known as Simon If. Um, and, and the two black magicians 
um, who are after the magic baby. One is McGregor <laughs> Mathers. I can't remember the name, what he gives the character, but the other black magician who's after the magic baby is A.E. Wake, and the name of that character, of all things, is Eighth Wake. Um, so it's an obvious reference to A.E. Wake. But the, the Crowley is the white magician in, 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 in Moonchild, and the, the, Crowley, the Crowley character is known as Simon If. Um, so if you ever read Moonchild, Simon If is Aleister Crowley. Interesting. Yeah, Crowley was all about promoting Crowley. He really was. I mean, he he, he was he was his best self promoter. He he really well, he, was he, really good at it. Yeah, he he's interested in that. Crowley is such a hard figure to pin down because I think I mentioned this um, to you the last one of the last times I was on. I'm not going to go go through this whole thing again. I mean, he was a spy. Um, he worked yeah. with Ian Fleming. It's it's hard to tell when Crowley was being a trickster when he was being serious. Um, he seemed to be putting out some disinformation on purpose, and it, it's so hard to, for for him to. It's so hard um, to pin down when Crowley is being serious and when he's being a joker. Um, and he did that on purpose. I mean, that was part of his mystique. Um, and I'll just end it on this. Crowley did have um, this genuine, I wouldn't call it a personality trait. It was probably more of a personality flaw. And he did this throughout his whole life. Um, he, 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 he dumped on people who were genuinely interested in him. Um, people who really did care about him and were interested in what he had to say and really wanted to learn from him and really took him very seriously and, and, and were interested in what he had to say. He had this proclivity of turning against them, um, and dumping on them. Um, and he did this throughout his whole life. He did it with Jack Parsons. He did it with yeah. Marjorie Cameron. He did it with Victor Newberg. Um, he did it with um, uh, Raoul Lovejoy. Um, I mean, anyone that was really interested in what he had to say, he dumped on at some point in time. Um, and what, why that was, it was just a kept, I guess, a personality flaw. But um, he did it throughout his whole life. And his various scarlet women that he had. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, his sex magic partners. Um, yeah, I mean, my God. uh you know, I mean, some of the things he put them through, I wouldn't even mention on air. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I know. I, I'm going to talk a little bit about Blavatsky and about Elifas Levi, the, the, these two different, uh, these two different characters of the late 19th century occult world. Blavatsky oh, has a ton of influence. And it's said that's even, uh, Blavatsky had influence on the Nazis later. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's absolutely true. Although Black Blavatsky would have been flipping in her grave, um, the, the Nazis completely turned, t- twisted that around. Um, Blavatsky, um, well, Eliphas Levy was, hu- was a huge um, uh, 19th century magician into transcendental magic, wrote the um, rituals of high degree magic, which influenced Albert Pike in Morals and Dogma. Alistair Crowley actually claimed to be the reincarnation of Eliphas Levy. I don't know if you're aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, huge magician, um, very influential, um, very important um, character in 19th century occultism and mysticism. Madame Blavatsky, Russian mystic, um, founds Theosophy, which is modern day um, Gnosticism, um, and she gets into this whole thing of hidden masters and different races, and how the Atlanteans were the you know the white race and were the master race and were the superior race. This this gets completely corrupted years later under the Nazi regime. Um, people like Guido von Liszt 
Jörg Lanz von Liedensfeld, who was a defrock Cistercian monk. Um, they, they twist Blavatsky around. Um, von Liebensfeld published a, a, a cult magazine tw- twisting the, the philosophies of Blavatsky. It was called Astara. Um, and who read that? Who was the number one subscriber of Astara? It was your friend in mind, Adolf Schickelgruber, a.k.a. Yeah. Adolf Hitler. Um, so, so, yeah, Blavatsky's teachings, uh, von Liszt's, Jörg Lanz von Liebensfeld, um, these guys completely twisted Blavatsky around. And, and you're, you're, I mean, did, did, but I want to make it clear, Blavatsky probably would have been doing somersaults in her grave. Um, this was not at all what she was teaching. Um, her movement was definitely neo-Gnostic um, and, you know, you know, more, more of a pursuit of esoteric wisdom than it was racial supremacy or anything like that. One interesting uh, just kind of fact and tidbit is that uh, Abner Doubleday, the inventor of baseball, who was actually right. at Fort Sumter when it was being bombarded, was a huge uh, theosophist. He was a big follower of Lovatsky. So was, um, and I don't know if I talked about this with the last time you were in, or was on with you, um, another person who was a member of theosophy was um, um, Frank Baum, uh, the author of The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, um, I think and, you mentioned you it briefly, yeah. Yeah, you will find not, you, theosophy and mystery school religions, um, and I get into this, I have a whole chapter on it, I'm not, I'm not going to bring go into it now, but I have a whole chapter in cinema symbolism on the um, theosophy and occult symbolism and, and mystery religions in The Wizard of Oz coming in from Blavatsky through Frank Baum. Um, that, that's, I, I go into that in the movie book big time. Was there any statements that Blavatsky made that were against Jews or Christians? Because this is something that I've seen come up a lot uh, in some uh, studies that I've made. Well, she was very wary. I mean, again, this goes back to Gnosticism proper, um, back to the, you know, back to its foundings was Gnosticism was very wary of the Abrahamic faiths. So if Gnosticism was wary of the Abrahamic faiths, so was um, Blavatsky. Um, you know, and, and, and she was definitely into, you know, more of Easter. She was more into trying to fuse together these ancient mystery school religions, which she saw as being corrupted in Judaism and, um, Christianity. And was basically just trying to create this one universal religion, Gnostic religion for all people to join. Um, uh, again, she's sort of like an Albert Pike figure, very controversial, um, like no giving doubt. people bad news, was a hellraiser, was a sensationalist. Um, that's irrefutable. So, you know, for her to make outrageous statements, that was, again, you know, part of her modus operandi, get attention, things like that. Um, but no, she, she was very much into Gnosticism and, you know, Gnostic thought was someone trying to dispel the Abrahamic faiths, which you'll actually, believe it or not, find in the Wizard of Oz of all things. Um, so, you know, you know, Blavatsky, again, like Albert Pike, controversial figure. Yeah. Kind of when you combine it with, anti-Semitism that's when you get this kind of heady brew that, that that produced the Nazis and so many of them especially Himmler were were occultists as well they were all into esoteric esoteric stuff oh sure Heinrich Himmler was big time into the occult Rudolf Hess was into astrology and the occult Joseph Goebbels was into Nostradamus. Um, Hitler, Hitler was interested in, in, in this material as well. So yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, with, with Nazi Germany, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there is all kind of occult, 
underpinnings with, with the Nazis. No, no question. I mean, the SS was based of Himmler's SS is based on the Templars and the Jesuits, right. um, the sort of elite class of warrior monks. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, no, no question about it. Yeah. Elite cadres. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to ask, this is an interesting thing to ask you about. And we've had a guy on named Walter Bosley on a few times. And one of the themes that has come up with him, especially in a book that he wrote called Empire of the Will, and this was about what he believes are these ritualistic murders that took place in San Bernardino, California in 1915. And he believes are basically these devotees of the goddess Hecate. And I wanted to ask you about the goddess Hecate, what she means, what kind of her significance is. Is there any significance with her in occultism? Oh, absolutely. Um, I can't speak to these murders um, because I haven't studied them and I'm completely unfamiliar with them. But um, Hecate is usually deemed as the god of witchcraft. Um, She is a three-faced god. You will usually, um, her rituals usually revolve around a crossroads as such. Um, or, or, or she's sometimes, uh, uh, symbolized as double faced, but usually three faced. Um, you know, and, and this is probably coming from the three faces of, um, of, of Satan in, in, in Allegory's Inferno. Um, the, the easiest way for me to describe her is she's a lunar goddess. Um, she, she, she is, uh, when, when you're dealing with, with, with these gods and goddesses, they usually have a darker counterpart. Um, for example, we get into Gnosticism uh, and, and the sacred feminine with the pursuit of occult wisdom with Sophia. Um, the darker version of Sophia is the goddess Lilith. Um, we get into this god Hermes Trismegistus, this wisdom bringer. The darker version of Hermes Trismegistus is Lucifer. Um, and we get into the moon goddess of Diana or Artemis. Um, and her darker version is Hecate. Um, she, she is a lunar goddess. She associates with witchcraft. She's the go- sort of the goddess of ghosts and demons. Um, and she's very, very revered, um, within witchcraft, um, and, and demonism. Um, I can't speak to the San Bernardino murders, but, um, it's, 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 it's an important, she's an important goddess within, within witchcraft. Um, and, and, you know, the, 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 the moon being the symbol of the sacred feminine, um, witchcraft, of course, a lot of it revolves around the moon. Um, and, and as such, it would be the darker version of the moon. So it'd be the goddess Hecate, um, very, very big goddess in, in, in witchcraft. Yeah, she seems to come up a lot and she has a couple of symbols as well, uh, animal symbols. And one is the dog. And that's that's always interesting to me because, I mean, your mind goes in a different directions because she's the goddess of the crossroads. And you think of the hellhound, you think of that motif, and you think of uh, also owls is another one of her symbols as well. And owls seem to come up in the occult a lot, I've noticed. This will be kind of a foreshadow to our next show, incidentally. Uh What's some of the occult symbol symbolism with owls? Yeah, well, owls owls usually tie into um, their wisdom symbols, um, and this ties into the wisdom goddess more of more of Minerva um, than with Hecate. Um, when you're getting into Hecate and you're getting into witchcraft, any sort of animal of ill omen, so like you know bats, goats, yeah. toads. 
um, you know, the owl, any night creatures um, are associated. I guess that's probably the better word. Night creatures are associated with Hecate. But when you're getting into um, owls and, and wisdom symbols, um, you're dealing with the goddess Minerva. Um, that's her sacred totem. Um, so so when, when you're dealing with owls um, and wisdom, um, you're dealing with the, the goddess Minerva. The reason why owls are considered wise is because they can see things in the dark. AKA they can see things that no one else can see. So the idea is the owl is wise because it can see things no one else can see. So um, the owl owl can can represent what you said, um, Hecate and witchcraft, no question about it, but can also be the goddess Minerva as well. It, I guess it depends on the context that it's being used and presented. Right. Owls also have been associated with Bohemian Grove. Uh, yeah, you well, have that, that, that large that has, owl thing that they have, right? Well, that yeah, that that has to do with the goddess Minerva. Um, Minerva. The, the reason the owl is at Bohemian Grove is because Minerva is on the California state seal. Um, it comes off. It, Minerva is on the California state seal. The California. We, uh, we 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 could talk about this all night. The history of the California state seal. Minerva comes onto the California state seal from the original Odd Fellows Grand Lodge in California, which which is uh, the California state seal is a replication of the original Odd Fellow state seal um, or the Odd Fellow Grand Lodge in California. Uh, this is being put there by Leland Stanford, the founder of Stanford University. The owl at Bohemian Grove is because of Minerva on um, the California state seal. Minerva comes onto the California state seal via the Odd Fellow seal. It comes onto the Odd Fellow seal from Union College in Schenectady, New York, where Minerva, this is the first Masonic quote unquote college of the United States. It's the first college to offer degrees in, in civil engineering or operative Freemasonry. The logo of Union College, I get into this in the Royal Arch of Enoch, the entire occult template with Union College is Schenectady, New York. The aerial temp template is the sunburst. The logo is we are all brothers under the laws of Minerva, and the um, seal is Minerva. So, so the, the the whole Minerva context actually starts at Union College, goes out west via Leland Stanford and the railroads, turns up on the Oddfellow State Seal, turns up on the California State Seal. The owl at Bohemian Grove is because of Minerva on the California State Seal. So it's not Molech. As, uh, it, as, it, as, as has been claimed, well, it, it looks like Moloch, and certainly the ritual is Moloch-like. Yeah, um, you know, but but again, I mean, I'll put it to you like this: I've seen that ritual. I, I, I joined uh, uh, the, the Bohemian Grove ritual looks tame compared to some of the college fraternity rituals um, <laughs> that you'll that you'll see uh, at college. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I I joined the college fraternity. I've seen some strange stuff, but the 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 whole um, Bohemian Grove ritual definitely looks like Moloch. I mean, no question about it. It's probably intentionally done where they're just destroying dull care. Um, you know, they're letting their worries go up, but, um, so are you, you saying know, that you've seen it on the Alex Jones yeah, movie sure. or you actually seen it in person? Oh, I haven't seen it in person. Okay. I'm not a member. Okay. I saw it on the Alex Jones thing, but I'll tell you this much. I've seen stranger, um, up at Gettysburg college, my alma mater. Um, I've seen some really crazy stuff that makes that thing look uh, pretty tame. <laughs> <laughs> What's your viewpoint on the Bohemian club? 
Well, I mean, it's definitely um, influential. I mean, you know, this is where the, um, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it's definitely a powerful organization. It's right. sort of the uh, playground of the elites. A lot of presidents have been members there. Um, you know, I mean, I believe this is where the Manhattan Project was conjured up. Um, you know, and, and the ritual is very, is very esoteric. Um, but I, 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 it's probably more of just a summer camp than anything. Um, but no, when anytime you have people of that kind of power getting together, um, I mean, you know, and there's no transparency. I mean, people have a right to ask questions, um, and, and things like that. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with it. Um, and, and, you know, the ritual is definitely kind of weird. Um, but, but I would definitely suggest that the Al, AKA Moloch is definitely there, um, through the, uh, Minerva appearing on the, uh, California state seal. So it's probably more of an, a wisdom emblem, you know, and that would make sense. You know, the people are wise who are there or whatever. Um, so, you know, that's probably what it, what it would probably more connotate to, but no, it, it, if you look at that thing and you're familiar with Moloch, I mean, no, I, it definitely looks like a Moloch styled ritual. Uh, I, I don't dispute that in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I think for me, it's not necessarily the weird ritual or guys dressing up, dressing up in ro- in robes and and having a ritual narrated by Walter Cronkite. I, I think it's more like th- what happens when that's not going on, and there's a whole bunch of powerful guys meeting together and setting policy without the input of the people of the United States. I think sure, that's the sure. issue there, you know. Oh, I agree. I, I don't disagree with you. No, I, I think it's a very fair criticism of the place. Yeah, absolutely. I was just curious how how you saw it. I mean, another point to make about it is, is that it actually started off as a as a group of artists, as I understand it. That's the name Bohemian Club. Yeah, it's very possible. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not, I know it comes onto the scene in the late 19th century. Um, I'd have to go look up who founded it and, you know, its origins. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not really an expert on that, but, um, what you, I wouldn't dispute what you're saying. Yeah. Have you, uh, since we talked last, have you seen a chance to see the hunger games movie since you brought Diana up? No, no, huge... I know I haven't seen those yet. Okay. Yeah. I think there's a lot there in those too. <laughs> oh, it, it, it could very well be. Um, it, it, it could very well be. Um, but like I said, I, I haven't seen them. So until I see them, I, I wouldn't really want to offer commentary on them. Gotcha. Well, Rob, what's next for you? What's coming up? And also uh, remind everybody where they can get the, get the books that you have out. Yeah, well, thank you, Adam, for having me on Conspiracy Normal. I mean, I thought it was a great show. I mean, we thank did you. really good tonight. Yeah, I mean, we did really good. We covered a lot of different topics. A I think there's a lot more topics. we could have covered, but the time oh, is yeah, always yeah. of the essence. Um, so. Yeah, but, my, 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 my voice will only hold up for, for so much longer. <laughs> right, right. Yeah if, if, yeah, if you're interested in what I've been talking about, just visit me on my website. It's the easiest way to find my books. Uh, Royal Archivinoc is out. You can get that in paperback or Kindle or ebook form. It's on Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook. It's in the Apple iBookstore. My website is my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. So my website is www.robertwsullivaniv.com. That's the letter I, the letter V, as in Roman numerals, www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Uh, my website, there's more information about me. There's links there to my social media, YouTube channel where you can listen to other interviews I've done. Um, I will post this a link up to this interview when it's up. Um, links to buy the books. It's on Amazon. You can buy them from the publisher. Um, links to my Twitter feed, Facebook fan pages, more information about me. 
Um, it's all there, very easy to navigate. Links to buy the book. Royal Arch of Enoch is out. Cinema Symbolism out is out. I am writing Cinema Symbolism 2 in my first work of fiction, um, and I am hoping to have them out late summer, early fall of this year. Um, and again, it's Robert W. It's www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Links to follow me on Twitter, social media, buy the book, all right there, all easy to navigate. Definitely when you get this second Cinema Symbolism book out, love to have you back on. For sure. Oh, absolutely. Love to come back on. Um, no, no question about it. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little cinema symbolism too, and uh, maybe a little of my first work of fiction as well. What are some of the movies you're covering in the in the next book? In the next book, we are dealing with. Um, let's see, we're doing with Crimson Peak. Um, we're doing um, um, the some of the movies of Alan Moore from Hell Watchmen. And, oh, um, Watchmen's um, full of stuff. Oh, Watchmen is loaded with stuff. Yeah. Um, and V for V for Vendetta, some of the movies of Walt Disney. Um, it's not what you think it is. Um, Maleficent, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Cinderella, the Witch Mountain movies, uh, the Lion King. Um, I'm doing, um, Western movies, uh, Good, the Bad, the Ugly, the Spaghetti Westerns, a lot of veiled religious symbolism in that. Same thing with the Gangs of New York movie with Scorsese. Um, uh, some of the other movies, uh, the Disney films, oh, the Harry Potter movies, I'm doing all of those, the Chronicle of Narnia movies, a lot of Christian neoplatonic symbolism in those. It's going to be a whole new slate of movies. Um, some of the movies from the first book I'm revisiting, um, which I promised I would do, like Black Swan, which has an alchemical storyline. Um, but, but basically all, all new brand movies. Um, and I, like I said, I should have that book out. Uh, late su- late summer, early fall of this year. Excellent. Excellent, Robert. Well, stay on the line for us. We're going to uh, close out this segment. And guys, we will be back for an outro on Conspiracy Normal. Do you want to live deliciously? Get back! You can stop that! That's right. There's some Black Phillip with some creepy little kids. <laughs> That's him, man. Man, Mr. Goda Mendes himself. I'm sorry, I'm eating a chocolate right now. <laughs> Got me a little bit off guard. That was uh, that was quite an interesting and very informative interview. Yeah, oh, I, I love having Robert on. Like he's he's always like I, I'm the kind of person that tends to overanalyze stuff and really get into things and like. Like sometimes I wonder if I'm seeing things that like mm-hmm. they're just coincidences or connections or something, and and Robert blows me out of the water. Like there's there's so many when it comes to the historical and the biblical stuff and all of that. Like I, I would have never even come up with any of that. Yeah, I mean he. he I actually need to re-listen did. to this just just to try to pick up some of the information that was in yeah, it. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. There's, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff there. And, and I kind of deliberately made it kind of, kind of broad. And there was, there was a couple of bullet points that I had sent him that I don't think we touched on. I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about witchcraft and, 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 and stuff too, because that's kind of like right in that time period of the Rosicrucianism and, mm-hmm. um, in between that and the 19th century. So that, that would be interesting to talk to too, especially in light of, you know, black Philip and all his shenanigans. Right. Well, well, one thing that I thought of like later, I should have brought it up when we were, uh, when we were talking to him, but, um, he, he talked about Satan 
or not Satan, but um the the goat reference yeah being um connected to was it Capricorn? Yeah, House the, of Capricorn. Yeah, caused the, the constellation and the and the uh, astrological sign. Yeah. See, I would have always I would have always associated it more to like the pan type of characters or the, the satyrs, is that the right right word? Sure. Or, you know, the whole goat, human, horn, hoof sort of beings that kind yeah. of permeate a lot of other mythologies. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a part of it too. Um I think that's another way of another way of looking at it. I mean you got you got the god pan and as you mentioned the satyrs. Uh, which incidentally he mentioned Narnia there and there's a Seder character in that, right. you know, uh, something that I remember, I had some friends, uh, that were Wiccan or they dabbled in Wicca, you know, back in the day. And some of the things that they said, these kind of like neo pagans, they will say that the image of the horned devil or the horned goat god is this Celtic god named Kernunos. Right. And that, that was he was a he was a masculine deity and god of the pretty much well, this is, of agriculture and Yeah, and this such is like something that. I'm really familiar with is the the whole dichotomy of um basically the whole universe as far as Celtic paganism is concerned. You know, you've got the male and the female side, the dark and the light right. side and that that one side, that one whole you know column or whatever, that's represented by the horned god. They call him, or right, and that's something with you know you mentioned the the female. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about we talked about the witch at the beginning of the show. You know, here's an interesting thing about the whole concept of the witch is that it seems to me like it's it's like this this holdover from when our culture or the culture that we sprang from was probably more of a matriarchal society and then kind of like the patriarchy took over in a way men became more of a focus in society and then women and that survived and then was later viewed as a threat to kind of the the the, the patriarchy system at that uh. at that time point yeah yeah, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, yeah because a, a lot of the things that they say witches would do, and some of it, some of it is just folk medicine. Yeah, right? a lot of it was. Yeah, I mean, it, some of the things that they say witches would do were, was very similar to all, just that kind of thing. Uh, folk medicine, folk arts, um, casting of spells. Like you would go to somebody to help you if you, you know, whatever it was, your crops were failing or right. you needed to make somebody fall in love with you. Those, those, those type of things. And these people were readily available and kind of when I would more say, I would put more of the emphasis on the Roman empire than Christianity, the, the, the kind of structure that Christianity later took over. That kind of structure was what was what stamped on this more, very patriarchal society and those those women became marginalized and later it just it just became a rational fear like we discussed earlier right so well and you know when did that movie take place the 1600s 
Like that was, uh, yeah, that was a rough time to live. You know, there's a lot of Absolutely. horrible things that can happen to you, and any kind of a any kind of a scapegoat that keeps up the community's morale, you know, or or sends the focus elsewhere was right. I mean, to a to a survival standpoint, almost like a necessity. It was so tough to live. Almost just like a diversion. Like it was fun to exactly. go out and watch these people get executed, right? Well, and then yeah. they're like, well, you know, okay, we did what we had to do to appease the gods. Now everything will be fine for a couple more weeks till we realize that the crops are still failing and then we'll find yeah. something else to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a very complicated history. Yeah, for sure. As far as all that goes. And, you know, like I said before, the concept of the witch hunt has become. Very much kind of like a, uh, an American motif in many ways. Mm-hmm. What's some of the other um, things you got out of the interview that you wanted to talk about? Oh, man. the um, Everything about the Rosa... I don't even know. Rosicrucians? Yeah, Rosicrucians. Like, that's something I've heard the term a lot of times but never delved into, and I don't really fully know the connection to, yeah. you know, like the Masons or... You know, in my mind, it was just it was another section of like this kind of... Not elitist, but sort of, um, you know, on the fringes, brotherhood sort of society. Sure. But I don't know anything else really about them. I know they're connected to the Georgia Guidestones, and I knew that <laughs> yeah. before before yeah. our episode. But yeah, I, I think kind of tangentially with the yeah, Georgia the, Guidestones. Well, yeah, the yeah. From what Doctor Future had said about him, but well, even from the 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 little bit of evidence, it was just like some letters and stuff that could be interpreted as being. Yeah. Yeah. I think they might have had some some input. And you gotta you gotta remember too, so much of this is like these societies that say they're Rosicrucian or they have Rosicrucian ideas, but are they necessarily Rosicrucian? Like, for example, there's a lot of Knights Templar groups out there that claim to be the Knights the actual Knights Templar, but some of them most of them are just modern, you know, manifestations. Right. They don't have like a, there's like, there's not a paper trail all the way to the Knights Templar. Right. It's just that they share the same beliefs and it's a revival when they're trying to bring it back. Well, and I think almost any society that's grown up in this country will be able to trace its lineage back to the Knights Templar. You know, all these, um, the Masons and our founding fathers and everybody, I think that they had some sort of common thread. Right, and a lot of it would have been like what Robert was talking about. Is just this common thread of ideas. Yeah, not to say that they're yeah. direct descendants, though. Right, right. I mean, definitely not. You know, like, definitely not. You can say like this organization, you know, bequeathed this one day to this organization. Like right. you just, you would just have to look at it as, as this common <clears throat> ideas, and this is this organization passes their ideas to this other people. Yeah. Uh, the astrotheology stuff. Yeah, I wanted to. I, I wanted to bring that up with you because, like, normally, um, you're pretty stone faced, Adam. You yeah, don't glaze things over, but you got a little bit of a look to you for <laughs> a fraction of a second. Well, you know, like I, I like Robert. I appreciate him coming on. He's so knowledgeable <laughs> about everything. I just like the astrotheology. I and, and it's interesting, but I think there's a lot more to religion than just the rotation of the earth, which I guess makes me a, not a flat earth person. Right. But, uh, <laughs> y- you know, it, I saw a great quote the other day that 
It said that, um, careful about everybody. There's flat earthers all around the globe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we're going to get into that soon. I, I got something I want to read about that, but, uh, that is <sighs> astrotheology. Well, first let me, let me preface this by saying that there's, there's two reasons I wanted to bring this up with you. And one is because yeah. you and I have had some really good deep theological debates, even though we have very opposing viewpoints. And, uh, well, the other reason is just being that you're you're generally very um, incredibly open to to opposing opinions, and that's why we've had such great discussions. But th- this, I could tell, like it, it like it, it touched something with you, and I knew that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think any time that anybody, when I hear someone say that Jesus never existed. I do take kind of umbrage with that and it wasn't something that I was going to bring up because we would have ended up talking about that and not talking about the other subjects that I wanted to get to the plan for the show. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but well, let me say it this way. I'm a Christian. So for me, I know Jesus existed, but that's, that's my faith, right? I mean, for me, the gospels are enough to show that Christ was here, you know, that he was a real person. But even if you want to, even if you want to just say, okay, throw out the gospels and say that they're just religious, they're just religious tracks or just religious writing uh, about someone that was was probably the, who they worshipped, and that's it. There are actually ancient sources that talk about Jesus. Um, two that I know of off the top of my head, one directly and one indirectly. The one indirectly is, I believe, Tacitus, who was writing in Rome roughly the later part of the first century A.D., I want to say around 70, 80 AD. And he talks about the persecution of the Christians during Nero, which has been around the 60s AD after the fire, great fire of Rome. And he talks about that. And he talks about the way he describes them is that they are followers of a certain Christus that was killed by was killed in in um Palestine. You know, and he flat out says it. The other direct one is Josephus, who was a Jewish writer who wrote about the same time as Tacitus, who actually was a witness to uh the war in in 66 to 70 AD, which was the Jewish revolt. He was actually a witness. He was actually involved in that revolt and then later fought for the Romans and then lived the rest of his life, I believe, in Rome, where he wrote a book called The Jewish War and then another book called Antiquities of the Jews. And in that book, he talks about Jesus. So it's flat out. You know, he was. He was executed by Pontius Pilate, or he says, I don't think he maybe mentions Pilate, but he says the tribune of the governor of the time, you know, 
Um, I don't have it right in front of me, but he says, so he does say that. And there's some people that debate that and will say that, okay, that's just inserted. And there is some language in Josephus where it says he rose from the dead after three days and all this kind of thing. And that could have possibly been inserted by monks in the middle ages. So, but there's some earlier and earlier translations of Josephus that do mention Jesus and say, just almost like it's in passing. Yeah. <clears throat> so in that respect, you know, you do have two sources at least that do say that Jesus lived and was a real person. Right. And whether you want to say he was the son of God and he rose from the, he was crucified, he rose from the dead for three days, or you just want to say he was a prophet, whatever, it just, it, there was a real person. Right. Well, the, the other reason I wanted to bring this up with you is because I've, I've always, even even as a little kid, like I was raised in, you know, a Lutheran church and, yeah. you know, went to church every Sunday and went through Sunday school and was confirmed and all that. But I've always looked at a lot of, a lot of the Bible as being um, very metaphoric, you know, and a lot of the teachings in it, like 90% of what Jesus said was, was parables and stories and things sure. that had alternate meanings and underlying themes and just ways to teach people to not, you know, just how how to act with other people, just how to be a good person. Yeah. And the Old Testament too, which you know it, you can trace its stories back to a lot of other stories, and I think a lot of that was sort of recycled and then bound back in because that was part of the times when the New Testament was you know being written. And so for me, it's it's this isn't as much of a stretch, I think. And then not to say that these people didn't exist or whatever, but I've I've heard a lot of references to um, a lot of alternate stories that are very similar to Jesus's. Yeah. The whole, the him being um, representing the son, you know, not just the son of God, but the son. Well, I will say this, and this is another thing that 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 Rob mentioned. Robert mentioned was, you know, that that he has parallels in. Uh, ancient gods of the near east um specifically he mentioned horus mm-hmm. um mithras is another one uh this is a this is a this got really big this idea got really big after the movie zeitgeist came out and this whole idea that you had these other gods of the or demigods of the Mediterranean world that were born of a virgin and died or pinned on a tree, died and then rose again after three days. Well, you know, I've heard our good friend Scotty Roberts talk about this as well. And I, I I looked into it and I've looked into a couple things and and Chris white, who's been another guest on this show, you know, he's looked into that. And kind of it looked into the whole zeitgeist thing as well. That part of zeitgeist because zeitgeist is dividing into three. One of which is talks about nine eleven, by the way. And a lot of that information from a lot of these writings about these other gods were actually after the gospels were written, so they were almost like they were copying Christianity. And not the other way around. Oh. Yeah. 
That's the one thing you're not being told when somebody <laughs> tells you, well, you know, that's there well, wasn't there wasn't a G there really wasn't a Jesus. He's just a copy of Horus well, or a copy of Mithras. See, even even having heard of those other stories, I never questioned that there was a Jesus. Yeah. I just question um the relevance of some of some of his backstory, maybe. Right. And and I, and, and like Luke, you know, uh, I remember having a conversation with him a few years ago and he actually looked at me and told me you know, that, you know, he didn't think Jesus was real. And because he had at that point been watching stuff like Zeitgeist. And I was like, wait a minute. And I told him what I told you about the ancient sources. You know, even if you want to throw out the gospels, there's still these sources that say there was a guy named Jesus and he was, he was real. And, you know, I, I mean, it's just, I respect people's opinions. It's just, you know, to me, um, I don't know if there's an ulterior motive in trying to debunk that, like some other people and especially Christian evangelical. I mean, you know, for me, it was Marquis might say there is. For me, it was always kind of a moot point, just because. Yeah, because I'm not, I'm not a Christian, and I do believe in the teachings of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that makes I any think sense. There's a lot of people like that. I he he had some great things to say whether he was real or not i don't care it's still a great thing and it's still great knowledge and good advice and yeah. you know i still teach my children all those same principles and morals yeah the, the, the not to get too theological with you though maybe this is maybe this is getting theological you know <laughs> it, it, it's fine to believe that it's fine to if you want to say that you live your life by that way but personally in my mind or in my heart, really, I, I see that, you know, you have to accept the story of Christianity, the basic story of the, 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 the crucified and risen Christ, and accepting that that was done to atone for the sins of everybody. And that I think that's, that's essential, as well as the teachings. I, they, they go to, for me, they go together hand in hand. It's like there are some people that will believe the opposite that will say, well, you know, that will actually believe in their heart about, you know, the, the, you, you know, Jesus died for your sins and, you know, so you don't go to hell, but don't practice any of the teachings. Right. You know, they, to they me, that's a thousand that. times worse. Yeah. And so, you know, you go to church and then you go home and beat your wife or something, you know, <laughs> I don't, and your kids. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I, there, there are those kind of people as well. So, you know, you, I, I really think in my mind as a Christian, you have to have both. I, I think this is, I think you've, I think you finally brought out the most Christian that I've gotten on this show, <laughs> Rob. Maybe it's because Luke isn't here to, Feel me with the sat the satanic power right next to me. Well, no, I, I, I and I totally get where you're coming from, but for me, the um the more dogmatic side of it is just I have not seen or felt anything in my life to to prove that that's right over you know any other spiritual type of belief. And I'm totally open to it, and, and yeah, you know, if if I ever do see something or feel something that makes me believe it, I will jump on board. But I've I'm open to everything else right. until then. Well, you know, this this is one thing also that I believe is that 
I just I can't do it out of fear of hell. <laughs> right. We talked about we, we we talked about the witch and the main uh religion that you see in that is Calvinism, okay? And I'm not a Calvinism. I'm not a Calvinist in the fact that I don't believe in the idea of predestination. That no matter what you do, even if you accept Christ, from the time you were born or preconceived, you were, um, you're just destined to either go to heaven or you're destined to go to hell. See. <laughs> okay. That's Calvinism in a nutshell. Uh, you know, and the, the opposite of that in theology is the idea of free will. I believe <clears throat> right. that humans were created, however, that process happened to, be free agents. So we're not that God didn't create robots and that you're given free will to choose one or the other. See, and that's, I think that you just touched on the difference between you and I is that I don't believe in free will. Not Interesting. Even the, not even the tiniest bit. I think if, if you were, if it were possible for somebody outside of our situation to rewind, hey, Neil Peart believes in free will. If, Oh, well, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Rush reference. <laughs> yeah. He also believes in 128th notes. But if, if so, okay, if somebody were to come in here and rewind this whole situation 10 minutes without yeah. our knowledge and without us knowing what we knew between then and now, I believe that you and I would reenact the scene perfectly without even the tiniest little itty bit of change. So with that being said, you could take me all the way back to birth and I'm going to end up here believing what I believe. And if I could die right now and go to hell because of that, that just, that makes all the rest of it really hard for me. Hmm. Interesting. We're getting deep on this. Yeah, we are. (laughs) We are. Which we had before. Usually we stop rolling before we get into these conversations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and and that's the beauty of it, man, is just agreeing to disagree on things like that. It's just, you know, that I find that interesting. It's it's usually it's usually it's usually in some ways the atheist that believes more in free will than the than the, really <laughs> than the Christian. Yeah, as I've always understood it. That's why I brought up Neil Parrott, <laughs> because he's an atheist and you know, kind of part of that philosophy of that song is, you know, if you listen to the lyrics you know, I, I don't believe in a God. I don't believe in any of the stuff. I believe in my own free will. And that's, that's a very, that's very central to an atheist. Uh, I'd say you're more of an agnostic, Rob, but yeah, but, but like, it, sure. but that's very, I think that's, you know, I may be wrong, but that's central to the, some of the atheist philosophy as well, well because you're the, you're the master but, of your own destiny. But, but part of that is the punk attitude of atheism in itself. Yeah. They, you know, they don't want to rel- they don't want to belong to an organization. They're like, they're their own beings. They're like, I exist and I matter. Like <laughs> you don't though. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, there's, 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 uh, there's definitely fundamentalists in every, um, group, isn't there? <laughs> yep. Uh, one thing I would want to point out about the Antonin Scalia, I had an article from the conspiracy newspaper, the Washington post. Uh, this has kind of come up, with uh the Scalia death and we were talking about secret societies a lot in this show and apparently uh the retreat that he went to in Texas was sponsored by or he was actually out hunting with 
these guys named the Order of, I want to say it's St. Saint, Saint Hubertus, International Order of St. Hubertus. And they are an order that has existed since, um, I think, like the 17th century in Austria. And they're, they're just basically hunters. And they're an order of hunters that kill wild game. Or whatever. And apparently they were out killing birds this day that Scalia actually died. And there's there's some conspiracy theories out there that have been saying that because this Order of St. Hubertus, the American branch that he was obviously with, um, that they are connected with Bohemian Grove. And, of course, that's a big thing with the conspiracy world and Bohemian Grove and oh, yeah. Illuminati and all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was uh, I thought that was kind of interesting in light of our discussion a few days ago about, uh, about Scalia and <laughs> some of the connections, uh, if there was any occult shenanigans going on there. <laughs> so I'm sure there's more to that story than we know. <laughs> I have no idea what it is, though. Yeah, there, there may be, or there may not be. Who knows anymore, man? You know, I mean, the time, like you said before, though, that timing. Ooh. It was, it was horrible. I think any time, although any time this election year was going to be horrible anyway, and also, you never know. I mean, there's a lot of older people. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is in her not. I think is in her 80s. She was older than Scalia. She might drop dead. You know, which wouldn't change the balance of the court if Obama got to nominate another one. But, you know, still, I mean, anything can happen still. And we, we got until next January. If the Republicans have their way, they're going to they're gonna make Obama wait and just uh, stonewall whatever uh, person that he selects. But anyway, I'm sure if Luke was here, he'd already be snoring <laughs> and pointing at his watch. So, uh, next time we're going to be back next week. Uh, we got Mike Cleland coming on and we're going to talk about his book, the messengers. And Mike is someone that I've wanted to get on for a long, long time because he is absolutely fascinating research on the link between alien abduction and owls, both as a screen memory for abduction and also, and also, abductees or contactees having experiences with real owls. And we kind of delved why I wanted to talk to Robert about that a little bit tonight was kind of the occult symbolism too, because owls are all over the place Um, in the occult, in the alien abduction uh, mythos, and also just girls love owls for some odd reason. Now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so guys, we will be, Rob, is there anything you wanted to add before we take off? Uh, no, no, I think we've gone through it. I think we were like, what were you like three hours by now? Uh, th- yeah, pretty close. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, uh, thank you for, uh, listening and we will see you next time on Conspiranormal and watch out for Black Phillip.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.